maritime law for me. Next, you'll want us to make not worst. This is practically a production of Macbeth. I'd better pretend I understand what's going on. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that was otherwise detained. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. Golly gumdrops, what a turn up. <laughs> we have surpassed the Civil Crawley Memorial Golly. Yeah. It's and now with- I have the Grantham Golly gumdrops. <laughs> it's Just another level. Every time Lord Grantham had an you know, uh, exclamation in this episode. I was like, why are you not just saying golly gumdrops? Every time he had a line in this episode. (laughs) I mean, I feel like he has turned into uh, the Candy King from Candyland. You know, kind of (laughs) ceremonial, doesn't really matter that much. He hangs out with that molasses shart monster. (laughs) (laughs) That's really unfair on McGee. (laughs) (laughs) I would never mean that. I I meant Rosamond. (laughs) Okay. All right, we are at the penultimate episode, people. That's right, we are. This is Downton Abbey Series 6, Episode 8. The last regular the episode. The last regular episode. Ever. They've still supersized it <laughs> they for <have>. our inconvenience. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's crazy. We're going to get into that in a minute. But mm-hmm. first, time to hear from our cousin of the week. Oh. Cousin Amanda writes... Hi there, cousins. I've meant to write all week, so I hope this makes it to you before we record episode eight. Do you remember back in season four-ish when some e-cards did Downton recaps as if they took place on Facebook? (laughs) Do we remember? (laughs) People still send them to us. (laughs) They were glorious, and I looked forward to them probably more than watching the show itself. I mean, come on. Season four. (laughs) Well, I've been with Downton Abbey from season one, but only just discovered your podcast this year. I'm happy to report that I look forward to hearing your take just as much as the show, and I'm sorry to come so late to the up yours, comma, downstairs, exclamation point party. (laughs) I'm now listening backwards through season five, and I'm angry all over again that they ship Charles Blake off to Poland or whatever. (laughs) Team Blake. I wanted to comment on Mary and the fiery car crash. The fiery car crash that really, really did not need to happen. What should have happened, would have been far more realistic and interesting, was for Mary to have a panic attack at the race. A legit, I think I'm dying panic attack. There would still have been high drama with what proper Lady Mary staggering back into the crowd, disoriented, wondering if she's having a heart attack, starting to weep, and at the same time being completely horrified and caught off guard by it. They've only still just barely mentioned poor dead Matthew this season, and it feels like the setup with a car man so she was so she'd have to face some PTSD that would surely be surfacing. I honestly have no idea how things like panic attacks would have been treated slash labeled in the 1920s, so that could have also been interesting to see. But it would have meant Henry and Mary having to work through the emotionally devastating thing that happened to Mary, not the gratuitous death of Henry's friend we've met maybe twice before and had no real reason to care about. A few more bits and pieces. First, who did your Downton remix music? I love to listen to the last three musical minutes of your podcast. Second, will you guys ever review Hamilton? I know there's a million things you haven't done, and I'm sure you guys are going nonstop, but I'm willing to wait for it. (laughs) Finally, y'all are hilarious and adorable, and please stay married forever. I have the honor to be your obedient servant, cousin A.C., Amanda. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, Amanda. Yeah. Uh, First of all, for your very astute fan fiction-ish take on what could have been really interesting no that and is this exactly honestly didn't the sort even of, occur to me no you're right and that's exactly the sort of thing that if julian fellows had a writer's room somebody might have bounced out there and because they could have realized, it's then that's, more yeah. interesting too for her to be concerned and upset 
when nothing bad happened. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, that's how these right. panic... I mean, she probably would have just been diagnosed hysterical. Sure. You know, no matter how enlightened Dr. Clarkson might be. I'm afraid she's got a wandering uterus. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to strap her down to the bed before we can get her to the hospital in York to have her lobotomized. <laughs> um... But yeah, and then that's a great point because the way that this all played out, it does center Henry in a way that is not super compelling. Yeah. Like as much as yeah. I love Matthew Good, right. I do not care about his character. Yeah. Because his character is such an obvious MacGuffin. You right. You know what I no, mean? I mean, absolutely. It's, well, and we'll get into this with yeah, this particular yeah, episode about just like how everybody's pushing Mary to get married only because it's series six mm-hmm. like only because this is the final episodes mm-hmm. and otherwise who cares no a lot of i mean this relationship is you know various things that happened this last season it feels like when homer simpson is trying to put a jigsaw puzzle together and he just puts two pieces together and smashes them with his <laughs> fist until they fit like that's that's what some of these things feel like uh to answer some of the questions raised, however, yeah. the Downton Abbey remix is from YouTube user Kick Inc. Uh, you can find that on YouTube. We'll <laughs> probably post a link as well. That's what we used in our first uh, series mm-hmm. that we ever did at this podcast. Yeah. And we just listened to like three minutes of it because we couldn't remember what the guy's name was. <laughs> right. Uh, man, I think we've still got just as good of a podcast as we did. No, I, I think mean, better I mean, it's, in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, but was, I think we still really... have much of our vigor. No, I think you're right. Absolutely. We've, you know, we've had some downtimes. Yeah, some downtown times. <laughs> sure. Uh, and as for recapping Hamilton, as for recapping Hamilton, I think that ever since we heard Hamilton, all of our recaps have, in a way, been recapping Hamilton. I would agree with you on that. <laughs> so uh, just keep listening to this podcast. Yeah, you'll eventually hear the whole musical, the entire musical, <laughs> spread through. Yeah, bits and pieces. It's yeah. kind of like how Doctor Who lives his life out of order. <laughs> So, uh, I'm like the river song, but for Hamilton. <laughs> so look out, Lin-Manuel Miranda. I know you have a wife and a baby, but, oh, but no, because we have to stay married forever. Right. We do. Which we're going to do. Yeah. So don't worry about that. Yeah. But we've, uh, we've agreed. You're also, I guess, the only person that knows Lin Moran- Lin-Manuel Miranda's real name or something. Or like his eyeballs or something. We kind of stopped watching Doctor Who. And by kind of, you mean emphatically. Well, emphatically, yes. Yeah. We, we weren't fans of the Moffat area. Era. <laughs> I like the Moffat area. <laughs> That's true. How's your Moffat area? <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> but that is also a debate that we don't necessarily need to get into. Correct. All right. So if you would like to be Cousin of the Week, you can send us a telegram at upyoursdownstairs at gmail.com or a carrier pigeon on Twitter. We're at 5 Maggie Smith at 5, the number 5 Maggie Smith. Or search up yours downstairs, comma, wait. (laughs) Or, I got too excited, search up yours, comma, downstairs, exclamation point, on Facebook.com. That's right. Gonna be honest, telegrams are weighted very heavily. No, you're right. Like, they just are. They are. It's for whatever reason. Well, you've got to pay by the word. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, Downton Abbey, the second to last episode. That's right. Starts now. (laughs) now i just want you to be one of the belligerent like you know new yorkers that they harass like you always do thirsk 9 20 (laughs) a.m it's actually some field uh just like last week actually started with a close-up of a field uh but this time instead of panning up to cars we pan up to parasols 
uh, Edith and McGee are walking along with parasols. And McGee is like not even using hers. Like hers is just balanced on her shoulder, but her face is clearly exposed to the elements. Also, it ain't sunny. Right. And this have, I mean, we've barely seen parasols on this show up till now. Am I wrong? Uh, Am I crazy? I could be genuinely crazy. feel like this episode, like I'm pretty sure they record the, or they film the Christmas special after. Mm-hmm. But this definitely has the feeling of, oh, here's all these crazy costumes we bought and never used. Gotta <laughs> just, get them in there or else we can't write them off on our taxes. Just somebody shut up. It's like, here's all those parasols you ordered. He was like, I ordered those five years ago. <laughs> yeah, well. It's like, I should have used Amazon Prime, like in all our commercials. <laughs> anyway. Uh, McGee and Edith are talking, apart from just carrying parasols. And McGee says that you mustn't make him wait forever. Uh, this is presumably... I don't want to wait <laughs> for our lives to be aware. We assume that they are talking about Birdie. Uh, and Edith... Not sa- Paula Cole. <laughs> Edith's long-time lesbian lover. <laughs> Paula Cole was just a dream back then, <laughs> Kelly. <laughs> Edith had one baby. She was born out of wedlock. Edith says that she loves Birdie and would accept him if it wasn't for Marigold. That, you know, Birdie would let her keep Marigold, but if she stays silent, there is a lie at the heart of her marriage. I really hate the phrase, he would let her keep Marigold. Like, I know that it's totally accurate. Right. But I hate it so much. That's fair. Uh, but she says if she does tell him, she might ruin it. McGee says that Edith is a grown woman and she can't make her do anything, but she can't marry a man and leave him out of a secret like this. She'll never be happy. And Edith's like, well, how happy am I now? Uh, you own a magazine. Yeah. And like, you're pretty much, fu- like, she, she was got- fine before he showed up again. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, you've got apparently one of the coolest apartments in London. Like- yeah. The freaking uh, Bloomsbury group used to hang out there. Right? You could just charge people to come look at it. <laughs> Anyway, no, and I mean, I guess that's the thing. And yeah, I mean, just be I know... like, you know, a famous author puked on this chair once. Like, <laughs> Yeah, you can even make that up. Yeah, for sure. Um, people believe anything if her boyfriend was killed by Nazis before <laughs> it was cool. <laughs> She's going to be insufferable when World War II starts. Oh, your loved one was killed by Nazis? Yeah. <gasps> if only I'd kept Marigold a secret till now, I could have <laughs> said I was a war widow. <laughs> um, I've been losing loved ones to Nazis for years. <laughs> Hitler hipsters. Hipsters? Mm, doesn't quite work. Um, no, but she didn't seem unfulfilled no, you're, to me. you're right. I agree. And that, I don't even mean in an anachronistic sense. It was just like, oh, I'm just a spinster. Yeah. I mean, I guess the way you could spin it is that. I feel like the age for spinster has been a moving goalpost this entire series. I think you're right. Well, because when it started and they were all like 18 and 16, they were like, oh, you'd better get married by your second season. <laughs> <laughs> they were. You're right. I was just paging through one of our books of scripts, and it was saying they needed to get married married before the bloom was off the rose. Not a euphemism. No. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, and I mean, this, again, is running through the whole of this, where it's like, oh, Edith and Mary have to get married. Right. But I'm like, do they? Yeah. I mean, to be fair... Edith does seem to really like Birdie. Oh, So yeah. it's like that, to extent the dilemma, you know, if she hadn't met him, she'd just be bopping along with her ward. But yeah. now that she has, and she wants to, you know, tap that. And she's not tapping it out of wedlock this time. No. She made that mistake once. Out in the back courtyard, uh, for some bizarre reason, right. I feel like this happens in the field here, and then also, like, 
they're out in this like they just like the people who run Highclere Castle were like enough <laughs> you're done we told you not to have another dog in here and you did this one isn't even trained <laughs> uh is it office? I think it's officer bummer. Oh, okay. Not sergeant bummer. Okay. <laughs> You're pulling back the curtain, folks. <laughs> officer bummer asks Mrs. Patmore if she owns her B&B, and she does. He asks if one of her guests was a Dr. Fletcher and his wife. Patmore's like, yeah, they were my first guests. I'm awesome. She's so excited. <laughs> she is. She says they were very courteous and respectable, but Officer Bummer says not that respectable because Dr. Fletcher was actually Mr. Ian McKid, ancestor of Kevin McKid, <laughs> and his wife was a Mrs. Dorrit. <gasps> Scandal. She kept her maiden name. No, Tom. <laughs> they were shacking up, committing adultery, doing the loosey-goosey. Out of bed and breakfast? Yeah. I know. This is the first time this has ever happened. <laughs> That's what bed and breakfasts were invented for. That's that right. For retirees to not have to stay in a frightening hotel. Right. Do you want to? Do you want to cheat on your wife, but not in an alley? Come to our B and B. So, Mr. Dorrit, Mrs. Dorrit's husband, is now suing Mr. McKid for damages related to adultery, and Mrs. Patmore may be asked to testify. Mrs. Patmore collapses on a bench, yeah. and Officer Bummer says there con- there is concern that Houghton Lascern will be in the news as the site of a house of ill repute, and not just a village with a very silly name. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Patmore and Mrs. Hughes are uniformly shocked. Sergeant Officer Sorry. Bummer... Uh, I think he is a sergeant, though. I think he is. He's I, Sergeant Willis. Yeah, we're really like. disrespecting him by calling him <laughs> Officer Bummer. No, that's a good point. He's an NCO. Hey, Officer Bummer. <laughs> Bum you! <laughs> Officer Bummer says that the rumor mill may have already begun, though there is a chance that Dorrit will settle. He says he'll keep them informed. Mrs. Hughes thanks them. And Anna walks in as he leaves and asks what he's doing there. Because, uh, you know, he has only bummed her out. Right. And, uh... He says to ask Mrs. Patmore, and Anna's like, you know what? I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Let this one go. In the library, Lord Grantham tells Rosamond that the Dowager is swanning around the south of France, and he wishes Cora, and then Rosamond interrupts to say that she won't hear a word against Cora. You know, I have to say, Rosamond and Cora have never had a conflict that I'm aware of, apart from when Rosamond was keeping Marigold a secret. Yeah, but I think like, you're right. But, like, they have never had, like, a, you know, sister-in-law squabble. Yeah, no, I think... I guess the Dowager is, like, everybody's sister-in-law and their mother <laughs> yeah, slash mother-in-law. <laughs> uh, yeah, but Lord Grantham says he was only going to say that he wishes Cora wouldn't take it to heart because the Dowager has exhausted his patience this time. Rosamond says that while she did give him Tio, cut to Tio in her, in her basket. So cute! Yeah, super cute. And Lord Grantham says, that's true, he forgives her everything. Wait... This guy. Yeah. <laughs> He's one of them swing voters you keep hearing about. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> when he shows up to the House of Lords, they're like, great. Which side remembered to bring the puppy? <laughs> they look out the window and see Edith and McGee walking along. Rosamond asked if Bertie with Rosamond asks if Bertie will marry Edith if he finds out about Marigold, and Lord Grantham just doesn't want Edith to be hurt. Well, guess what, Lord Grantham? That's been the ongoing theme of this series. Yeah. So I think you're Often, setting yourself yeah. up for disappointment. Yeah. Breaking news! <laughs> British Marquis dies in Tangiers, uh, according to a sign in the village. 
right. meant to sell newspapers. It is successful <laughs> because Branson and Mary are leaving a shop and see the sign. Mary asks Branson to buy a paper because she remembers that Bertie's employer is the Marquis of uh, Hexham. Yeah. And loves Tangiers. And loves Tangiers. I don't know that she knew. She just knew that he was in Tangiers frequently. Okay. Uh, and yes, it is indeed Bertie's employer and the cause was malaria and he was unmarried. I bet he was. Remember, this is the artistic gymnast <laughs> who likes to go to Tangiers and paint all the virile young men. Yeah. Which is a great hobby. Yeah. Uh, it seems like he's getting away with it just fine. That's right. Well, until now. Well. Now that he has malaria. But anybody could get, I could get malaria yeah. tomorrow. Malaria happens. He, you know, was never exposed to scandal. Mary asks if that means Bertie's out of a job, and Branson says he supposes that depends on the air, and Mary is sorry for Edith, but Branson says not to sound gleeful about it, and I have to say, this is the least gleeful she sounds about Edith's various <laughs> trials and tribulations throughout this whole episode. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so, like, show don't tell, Branson. <laughs> In the servants' hall, Anna laughs as she says Bates should have seen Patmore's face. He says, Wait, how does she even know what happened? Uh... Because you said that she opted not to She ask. clearly did. I guess maybe she talked to Mrs. Hughes okay. apart from Patmore later. All right. That's that, pretty lame, Anna, but... Well, sure. Uh, he says it wasn't very funny for Patmore, just like nothing's ever been funny for him. Mm-hmm. Anna says that she's not laughing and then starts laughing. Mrs. Patmore didn't do anything wrong. No, she really didn't. She didn't break a law. Like, <laughs> people are going to commit adulteries in places that let you stay overnight. Yeah. That is what they're for. Right. That and reasonably priced business accommodations. (laughs) A Baxter asks Molesley how many classes a week he'll be taking. He says five afternoons between 2.30 and 4.30. Baxter asks what Carson says. Molesley hasn't asked him yet. Baxter says, don't ask him. Tell him. Uh, Molesley says, but what if it doesn't work out? (sighs) Sorry. That scene was so inconsequential (laughs) that I didn't realize it was already over. Yep. At Isabel's house, Murdy says, of course he didn't know Crookshank invited Isabel to her wedding. Isabel says, no one has ever been as rude to her as Larry Gray, and so why would he want her at his wedding? Murdy asks if it's not a good sign, because Murdy is the dumbest person on this show, I have decided. He is. And like, He's not delightful, in a, not in good-hearted. a way. Yeah. He is just dumb as a post. He's dumb, yeah. Isabel says she's not sure what it's a sign of, and Murdy says it's uh, Crookshank's influence, but Isabel agrees with that. Murdy says that she is a kind and gentle soul. Isabel is very skeptical. Uh, Murdy is surprised, and Isabel says, I don't know her, no. cryptically. <laughs> I don't know him. I <laughs> don't know how to crookshank. <laughs> I don't see why she crookshanks. <laughs> She's a crook. All right, I'm sorry. Also a shame. You know what? I'm not sorry. <laughs> I'm never sorry about singing musical theater. I've spent too much of my life hiding my light <laughs> under a bushel. Here I am. Okay. I'm Kelly Hannigan, and I love musicals to a degree that will someday have a disorder named after it in the DSMV. Yeah. Version 7. <laughs> in the Carson Cave, Hugh says that it was all she could do not to burst out laughing. Carson asks if it's funny. Somebody might draw a connection between Padmore and Downton. Like, they probably already have. Remember her coward, like, nephew who has a plaque now? <laughs> yeah, that all went out fine. Hughes is sure that they won't draw a connection. Carson prays that they don't, and he doesn't want the story mentioned upstairs. 
Meanwhile, upstairs, Mary and Anna laugh hysterically, and Mary says it's the first proper laugh she's had for ages. Anna says that she couldn't resist telling Mary, uh, because apparently they're the cast of Mean Girls now. <laughs> and they both agree that it's awful for Mrs. Patmore, but they start laughing again. Anna says that she'll have to think of something serious when she goes back down. Mary's like, well, Lord Hexum died, and then explains who that is, uh, you know, where we all stayed uh, last year at Christmas, and Anna reminds her she wasn't at Brancaster, she was otherwise detained in murder prison. That's right. Which you'd think you'd remember when your maid was in prison for murder. <laughs> you'd think you'd remember that. Not Mary. But Mary apologizes. I remember how you looked different for those few months. <laughs> Uh, she explains how Bertie might be out of a job, and Anna says how worrying for them, meaning he and Edith. Mm-hmm. Mary says, oh, her romance might not be the only one to come to an untimely end, which is pretty baiting. Yeah. Like, say what you mean, Mary. I know it's not your fault. And, like, you can kind of see Michelle Dockery straining under the weight <laughs> of this horrific plot. At times, At yes. times, uh, Leslie Nickel, on the other hand, carries hers with a plum. Yeah. We should have a long time ago instituted a, an Abbey Award for like, you know, greatest achievement in the face of insurmountable plot issues. <laughs> right. Just like a, you know, weightlifting award for yeah, dragging exactly. a terrible plot. <laughs> uh, Anna asks if Mary has heard from Matthew Good, and she says no, which means that he's accepted her decision. And like, yes. Anna asks if that's what Mary wants. Mary claims that it is. And you know what? I believe her. I know. She set a clear boundary. I'm the only one in the world, but I believe her. Yeah. I'm. You're not the only one in the world, Team Kelly. Mary. That's right. Like, don't marry this guy if you don't want to. Yeah. And if she says she doesn't want to, she has the right to say that. And uh, like, She fucked Gilly. Right. She didn't marry Gilly. Mm-hmm. She, you know, probably could have boned down with Charles Blake and didn't do that. Yeah. Even though I wish she was running screaming to Poland at this point. I forgot how he was in Poland until we read mm-hmm. that telegram. I was like, oh, my God, that's true. <laughs> Baron Fellows said Charles Blake to Poland. That's true. <laughs> In the kitchen. 1925, <laughs> a winter's ball, and the Crawley sisters are the envy of no one. <laughs> Maybelline Fox is the envy of all. Aw, oh, man. Where is Maybelline Fox? Whither the fox? Oh, where are the foxes of yesteryear? <laughs> Uh, they were all shot in the first episode of this series. <laughs> That's true. Oh, man. That blackmailer. Anyway. In the kitchen. We have spent most of today <laughs> just saying to each other, remember when X happened about Downton Abbey? And, like, yeah. not even, you know, not even in preparation for just, no, just in just, the course of general conversation. Yeah. Just because, you know, here it is, the end of the line, and it's like, wow. Just what wow. a What a life we've all led. <laughs> In the kitchen. Patmore says that she can't in get... In the kitchen! <laughs> she can't get the phrase out of her head. Daisy says... A house of ill repute. Patmore says... She knows what it is, thank you! <laughs> uh, then Molesley walks in with Teach, who hands her the results of her exam. She passed every paper with high marks, and everyone's pleased. I'd like to know specifically what marks. Like, high is very vague. I, I don't know. In that one green room... Uh, McGee is sorry for Birdie. First, that day at the racetrack, and now this. And I'm like, you know, nobody knew that guy, except for Matthew Good, and you're all acting like it was your closest friend who died. Yeah. It was only Matthew Good's closest friend. That's right. And only because that's what we were told. <laughs> yeah. 
Edith comes in and says rather somberly that Bertie's coming down tomorrow on the first leg of his trip to Tangiers, and McGee's glad that she invited him. Branson asks how he is. Edith says, you know, he's very sad. It was all so quick. Edith says that the trouble is that they've already buried him, and he doesn't know what to do. Uh, Isabel Metal explains that it's ordinary in hot countries to bury somebody. It won't mean any disrespect, and Edith wonders if they should leave the guy there. Mary says, surely that's up to the Marquis. And Edith says, well, the thing is, Bertie is the new Marquis. <laughs> Everybody's stunned. Yeah. And Mary says, it's nonsense. He would have told Edith if he was the heir. But he says he did tell her, but his cousin was in his 30s. They all knew the girl he would marry. Yeah, and he was living as a gay man in Tangiers. <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> Mary says that's absurd because if Bertie's a Marquis, then Edith, Lord Grantham says, yes, golly gumdrops, Edith would outrank us all. And everyone laughs very pleasantly except for Mary. Yeah. Because they all have a highly developed sense of irony. <laughs> McGee asks if uh, Bertie was a close relation of the dead Marquis. Edith says second cousin once removed and nobody ever thought that Bertie would inherit. Isabel says that uh, Bertie always seemed like a nice young man and Rosamond says and getting nicer by the minute I'm glad Rosamond's been in these last couple of episodes for no reason I know me too <laughs> oh she had a cold <laughs> right there was a bee <laughs> Branson says they that uh, Bertie has a real love of Brancaster which okay oh and here's where Lord Grantham yeah. says golly gumdrops what a turn up and Carson enters and McGee says that's dinner. They all start heading in and Brantis says that they'll all bow and curtsy to Edith and Mary will enjoy that. Mary says hardly. And if Bertie is Lord Hexham, he won't want to marry Edith now. McGee, in one of the best line readings she's had, says, careful or people will think you're jealous, dear. And we don't want that. Yeah. And like Mary's going seriously rogue. Yeah. Like this should just be called Downton Abbey, comma, Mary, comma comma Colin, <laughs> rogue bitch <laughs> yeah no i mean she like just turns the real, it up the real turn up is mary's bitchery yeah yeah because she's always been a bit bitchy but she's really off the rails she really and is they claim to have reasons for that in this episode right that do not pass our scrutiny we'll have plenty of time to discuss at the carson cave mosley explains that it's only a tryout he'd be gone every day from two to five so we could still serve dinner and luncheon Carson says, well, no lingering over the pudding. He says that... Thomas Isn't that Carson's job? I don't know. To linger over the pudding? <laughs> Hughes says that Thomas is still there, and Carson says, don't we know it? But Hughes says that he could take over as needed. Carson asks why Molesley thinks he'd be any good at teaching, and Molesley says maybe because he wants it so much. And Carson says, well, plenty of boys want to be famous cricketers. Uh, and that doesn't make them famous cricketers. Mosley says he just wants to try. Hugh says, and so you shall, and gives Carson a look. I mean, I think the one nice thing that's happened, despite the continued bitchery of Carson as well, yeah. it's like he and Mary are like telepathically linked like E.T. and Elliot. <laughs> and as one gets more bitchy, it compounds the other one's bitchiness. I think you're right. Um... But the nice thing about Mrs. Hughes being married to him now is that she seems to be exerting more influence mm -hmm. and realizing that he really is just an old booby. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't impersonate Mrs. Hughes and I'm it sorry. devastates me. I'm sorry, Kelly. I'm sorry for everyone who listens to this free podcast. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, in a different green room. In a green room. Yeah. At least I think it's different. I've. I wish I'd figured out these rooms by now, but I just haven't, and it's too late. Well, this is McGee's dressing room okay. slash bedroom. It's where they all hang out before dinner. 
Well, but Branson's there. Wait, is he? Yeah. Oh, well, then never mind. Oh, yeah. I was thinking of a different scene. Okay, yeah. Sorry, I just saw Mary being angry about Matthew Good being invited. <laughs> okay, anyway, the family all laugh about Mrs. Patmore. This is the sitting, the drawing room, I think. I think you're right. Um, Rosamond says, what an unlikely baldy house, madam. <laughs> Edith says She's been they... taking a correspondence course from the Horror Institute. <laughs> Isabel's like, oh, that old thing. <laughs> Who would have thought those industrious horse would have kept it going in my absence? <laughs> Uh, Edith says they mustn't joke while Bertie's there. And McGee promises they'll all have appropriately long faces. Across the room, Branson says that he's had a call from Matthew Good, and Mary, who is totally over him, breathlessly asks why he didn't say so sooner. She asks how he is. He says, morning, Rogers, missing Mary. Mary then tells him not to invite Matthew Good there, and Branson says, suppose he just turns up. Mary says not to encourage him. She means it. They'd be wretched long term, and Branson says, and you're not wretched now? Which, yes, she is behaving in a wretched manner. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's because... Uh, Matthew Good's no good for her. I mean, maybe she just needs to get laid. Right. Like, I'll grant you that. But, like, but I don't think she's unhappy in her life. Yeah. And if she, and even if she's insisting that she is. Right. And if she's wretched and she, like, she has the right to be if she wants. She's a grown woman. Yeah. But it's like, okay, she's got her son that she only has to see for 45 minutes a day. She's the estate agent and otherwise just wears fabulous clothes and swans around in the country. Right. Or, I mean, she was the estate agent until this Irish asshole showed up out of nowhere and horned his way back in. (laughs) A bit later, Edith and Rosamond are talking. Edith says that Mary thinks that Bertie will throw her over. Rosamond doesn't see why. She says, surely it's encouraging that he's stopping by. Edith says maybe he's coming to break with her. He's not bound. She hasn't accepted him. phrase break with so much more than break up yeah break up sounds like you're an object whereas break with it's like oh no like we were in this together and now i hate you yeah <laughs> <gasps> rosamond asks if she's told him about marigold and edith says not yet rosamond says to make a clean breast of it if she doesn't she'll regret it and edith says with her luck she'll regret it either way i mean somebody's been reading her own script <laughs> In the servants' hall, Mosley is writing something. Hannah wants to know what he's doing. He says he's making time charts and setting some tests for comprehension. Anna says, tests? Like, isn't that what school is? <laughs> Baxter acts... Baxter acts? <laughs> Baxter asks... Boy, that is a tongue twister. Baxter asks if he is expecting too much. They're just village children. They can't pass tests or read. Mosley thinks if you expect a lot, you get a lot, which I agree with, Mm -hmm. Mosley, for a change. (laughs) Elsewhere, Mrs. Hughes asks Mrs. Patmore how she's doing. She's very shaken, and she'll go see her niece tomorrow. Mrs. Hughes will come with her because, once again, all the work is done. Uh, (laughs) It's like in The Sims. They've made everything self-cleaning. They actually hire out their own help now, so it's all fine. Right. In their bedroom, Lord Grantham says, A genuine copper-bottomed Marquis. For Edith! Who'd have thought it? Golly gumdrops! <laughs> McGee says she hasn't accepted him. And Lord Grantham says, Oh, he wouldn't be coming if he changed his mind. That's true. He would just ghost. Yeah. They'll send you a telegram. Dear yeah. Edith, stop. Uh, you know, fuck off. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you could put that in a telegram. <laughs> That's a good point. Maybe on Deadwood. <laughs> That's right. In fact, in Deadwood, you have to. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Garrett is like... Really? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's Blaznov. He's like, you must have the word fuck in your telegraph. You do a really good impression of Blaznov. <laughs> Thank you. I find you very attractive while doing it. <laughs> good to know. Uh, that's something I didn't know about myself, <laughs> and now no one can unknow it. <laughs> it's true. It's <laughs> on the internet. That's true. 
Lord Grantham says that if anybody had told him that Mary would hook up with a mechanic and Edith would marry one of the grandest men in England, he'd have knocked them down. Uh, even though your other daughter also married and was inadvertently killed by a mechanic? <laughs> yeah, but she was the hippie daughter. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> He was always expecting, he was always expecting her to end up with like an artist and an opium addiction or something. <laughs> so really, was this a better outcome? <laughs> yeah. McGee points out that Mary dumped her mechanic and Edith's not married yet. Lord Grantham says that he knows, but, and I love this line, but for poor old Edith, who couldn't make her dolls do what she wanted, uh, it is rather wonderful. I- just like to hearken back to a previous conversation they had in this very room about how they hate Edith and they <laughs> don't want her caring for them in their old age. I understand. So I'm just saying in this newfound appreciation and love for Edith uh, is a little bit false. Right. Uh, yeah. I would also like to see Downton Babies. Remember there were all those rumors in I think series three or four mm-hmm. about like flashbacks and like casting rumors about like young versions. Yeah. Of Mary and Sybil and Edith. Right. And that never, that never, never I mean, and it shouldn't, like, this is not a flashbacky show. Right. I mean, they've, they've, like, this is a strictly linear chronology, and once you've established that, you gotta stick with it. I mean, maybe people were just confused by, like, the need for Sibby to be cast. Yeah, that's possible. Anyway, McGee says that there's still Marigold, which Edith hasn't told Bertie about yet, and Lord Grantham begs her not to let things be spoiled for Edith. That's all he asks. McGee laughs and says, all? And I feel like this is just the dramatization of a conversation between Baron Fellows and Neem. <laughs> yeah. Who we've really been letting off the hook lately. Right. You're right. We've, we've forgotten... really been, we've forgotten to hate on Neem. You're right. As we've been hating on Baron Fellows. Yeah. Uh, McGee also doesn't point out that unlike some people in that bed, she has not talked somebody into leaving Edith at the mm-hmm. altar. When so... she looked dope as hell. Yeah. Mary stands in the woods, pensive, and I hope this is where she, you know, accepts her destiny and becomes a witch. <laughs> Unfortunately, she does not, because Branton is there. Right. And as Ruining we all know, everything. witches lose their powers in the presence of an Irishman. <laughs> Branson is there, and he says he doesn't think that they need the wood any longer. Mary says nothing. Branson asks her to let him get Matthew Good up to see her. Mary says that nothing's changed, but Branson says that she has. Like, since what, two days ago? Apparently. Fuck off, Branson. Yeah. Mary says it's not as easy as that. She finds him attractive. She likes him a lot. Branson says that's a load of baloney. Like, that's... It. No. Eh, wrong. <laughs> like, again, just in that Google Doc, it's like, use the phrase baloney. <laughs> he picked it up in Boston. <laughs> Mary says if she's in love with Matthew Good, that's a powerful urge that fades. Much like how she feels about her son. Correct. She loved him for a minute. <laughs> Branson asks if it faded with Matthew, and Mary says that they weren't married long enough, but she's sure it would have. Branson is not. Mary says that she doesn't mean to pull rank, which is what something who mean to pull rank often say. But people like her need to marry sensibly, especially if they're going to inherit the family show, which she is not. Her son is inheriting the family show. That's an excellent point. It's a way of life that isn't for everyone, and a bad marriage can poison it. And Branson says that Matthew Good is not an orangutan, <laughs> not like my nephew. <laughs> and even he can ride a tricycle and smoke a cigar. <laughs> uh, he points out that Mary and Matthew came from different poles, and Mary says they were young and free, and it's difficult the second time. Okay, hold the goddamn phone that Gwen helped them install. Or whatever. <laughs> yes. 
Okay. So Mary and Matthew were like trying to get together. Mm-hmm. And then like he dumped her for a reason that I do not remember at the <laughs> end of the first series. Because she like said something and then it got back to him. Something that was like she was like bitchy about something and then he was like, well, I could never marry you anymore. Yes. But it was like it got back to him because of Edith. Right. Because Mary was bitchy about her to Anthony Strallen. Yeah. Anyway, then Matthew got engaged to the St. Uh, Patrick's Day Massacre. Mm-hmm. And like Mary was all like trying to tap that during World War One, mm-hmm. And then he came back and was crippled. And had a dick that didn't work. Mm -hmm. And then Lavinia got the goddamn Spanish flu. She was like, oh, I seem like a bother. I'll just die. Yeah, so she died. (laughs) Then he was like, well, I can never, like, love again, apparently, because this, you know, human snow cone is gone. (laughs) And then they finally, finally get together. Like, that seems a lot harder than, oh, you know, do you want to smash? Yes, no, maybe. Like, that's all that's happening here. I know. Okay. And I mean, look, and I understand, but you know what? Her situation is also a lot more clear cut because her son is the heir now. Yeah. Like when, with Matthew, like I left out of that whole triptych, the whole mess of him being the heir. Right. And if she wanted to run the family show, as she puts it, she basically had to marry him. Yeah. Making his, you know, whatever social class he was born into, he was going to be running the estate one way or the other. So yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm saying she is financially secure. Her son stands to inherit what seems to be one of the, you know, few fully functional country houses left in England. Mm -hmm. Fucking marry this dude. I'm with you. I mean, except no. Like, you don't want, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but it's, yeah. The, The point is that the two situations are not at all comparable. They're not at all comparable. And it's like, there's a version of this story where, like, all of the things they're saying are true are ostensibly true. Mm-hmm. I just don't buy it the way that it's been laid out here. Right. Anyway, uh, Branson asks <laughs> why about something that was on the other page. <laughs> Mary says, because you know what's at stake the it, second time around. Right. And Branson thinks it's an opportunity for her to get it right. Uh, like, she didn't get it right the first time? Well, if it was so right, why did he get hit by that car? <laughs> Because he didn't look at the road. (laughs) Mary says, honestly. Branson says he's always honest. Mary says, are you? And Branson asks why she'd say that. And Mary says, one word, marigold. Branson says that it wasn't his secret to tell. And Mary says, so it is true. Branson says, never mind, marigold. She won't make Mary happy. But Matthew Goodwill. Uh, Mary says that he's far more on Matthew Good's side than hers. And Branson insists that Matthew Good is the one for Mary and she should trust him, Branson, mm-hmm. the person who is legally barred from going <laughs> back to Ireland and give Matthew Good a chance. Mary says no. And if Branson wants to redeem himself, he won't give Matthew Good a chance either. I mean, look, he can hang out with Matthew Good all he wants, but like, just don't invite him over. Right. In the library, McGee asks where everybody is. Lord Grantham says Mary and Branson are agenting, and Edith's meeting Bertie's train. Rosamond asks, are we going to talk about it? And then puts down her paper and asks if they'll sit by and let Bertie's family in future be put at risk from a scandal they are hiding. McGee says she doesn't think they need to tell everybody, but she agrees that she must tell Bertie. Lord Grant. Lord Grantham asks if it isn't up to Edith. Rosamond says that he says that because after Gilly left, he thought none of his daughters would make a worthy marriage. And now that there's a chance, he can't give it up. I 
don't i also don't buy that he even cares about them making worthy marriages anymore yeah i agree like i think he cared about the estate being secure and then once they stopped letting him have a checkbook it all was fine right well i mean i think you know i think he cares about edith getting married because she likes this guy it's not about you know the worthiness of it for him i mean i think he likes it yeah yeah it's something he's familiar and comfortable with right but it's not like he's been banging you know this blue blood drum the way that he was in the previous three seasons agreed Lord Grantham says that Ra- Rosamond hasn't got children, so she doesn't understand these things. Mm. Rosamond says, no, I haven't had children, Robert, as you so kindly remind me. Yeah, which is like full points to Rosamond, because that was a bad cho- choice. <laughs> it was a bad choice. Uh, Chewy. <laughs> we make a choice after luncheon. <laughs> Rosamond does hope that she has a sense of decency. Lord Grantham asks, how long she's planning to stay? That cold must have cleared up by ah, now. there's the cold. Yeah. I thought they talked about it before. No, I mean, maybe she did. I was like, I, I was like, I just thought Rosamond had always been there at this <laughs> point. I was like, what's going on? Anyway, McGee She says, really is the, uh, oh God, what's his name in The Shining? Right, Mr. that guy. Uh, shit. Mr. Pamuk? No! <laughs> Although that would have been amazing. Uh, Torrance. Yeah. Oh my god. Sorry, everyone. It's all right. Gotta go watch Room 237 again. <laughs> Yet again. Darn. <laughs> <laughs> McGee says not to fight. It won't make anything better. And then Bertie and Edith walk in. McGee says, hello, Mr. Pelham. I and Bertie mean- says, hello. <laughs> says that he will stay Mr. Pelham until the service, but he wishes that they would call him Bertie anyway. Lord Grantham asks what sort of service it will be, and Bertie says not a funeral. He has decided not to disturb his cousin's body. I mean, he seemed to like being in Tangiers better than England anyway. Yeah, I think Bertie's making the right choice. Uh, He's just going to fetch his things and settle his debts, and then have a service at home to say goodbye. McGee says that sounds like a good plan, and Edith hopes that Bertie will allow her to come, and he says that he wants her to. Lord Grantham asks if he remembers Rosamond, and he does. She says that this must be a strange and unsettling time. Bertie agrees. He says that his mother's cock-a-hoop, but she doesn't appreciate that he was devoted to Cousin Peter. McGee's sure she does appreciate, and Bertie's like, eh, not really. He says, <clears throat> he says most people didn't get the point of him. He was so delicate. I bet several people got the point of him, <laughs> if you know what I mean. I do. Uh, but he was as kind to me as any man has ever been. McGee says then he would be pleased to know that Bertie's his heir, which he knew all along. Yeah. They, anyway. Uh, Bertie is moved and says that that's so nice of her and then says that they've made him blub. Which, like, he, like, looked uncomfortable, like he had to fart for a second. <laughs> I know. But, the, you know, welcome to England. Edith says that she will take him upstairs. Rosamond asks Lord Grantham if that's the man that he wants to trick into marriage. <laughs> Lord Grantham says he's going for a walk. McGee- Golly gumdrops, <laughs> I'm going for a walk. <laughs> Mucci tells Rosamond that she agrees with Rosamond, but Lord Grantham thinks that Edith's had so little luck. Rosamond sympathizes, but they both know that Edith is making a mistake. Uh, you know, they haven't, like, act, like, Edith hasn't done anything or not done anything at this point. I agree. I mean, I agree with McGee and Rosamond that she does need to tell him, but she hasn't, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's still... In the servants' hall, Carson reminds everybody that Bertie is now the Marquis of Hexham, which, of course, they would be calling him Mr. Pelham anyway. No. Mr. Bates says that he helped him unpack, and he wishes to remain Mr. Pelham until his cousin's funeral. Carson don't care. They <laughs> will refer to him as his lordship. Thomas is reading a letter, and Baxter asks if it's good news. He says, not exactly. 
She reads a note saying, they wish to combine the roles of butler, chauffeur, and valet, and Thomas seems overqualified, but please accept their best wishes for the future. Thomas asks, what future? Baxter says, don't be silly. Thomas says, of course, that's right. Silly, aren't I? Silly old me. And he heads out. Baxter says uh, to wait to Thomas, but Mosley's like, let him go. And I agree. Come on. You know, Baxter, he doesn't even like you. Yeah. At luncheon, Isabel asks Bertie what his cousin liked about Tangiers, and Bertie's like, uh... He says he used to talk of going down to the beach and watch the fishermen bring in their nets. The setting sun would make the scene magical. So it's like, he doesn't explicitly say the gay sex, but... Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. They mix the point. You know, you, you had me at fishermen. <laughs> Isabel says, goodness, how lyrical. Bertie agrees... Also a euphemism for gay sex. <laughs> And says that he was an artist in his heart. Lord Grantham says his family can't boast much in the way of artists, though they had an aunt that was good at macrame. I think it's macrame. I mean, macrame is how Americans say it. Okay. But thank you for knowing what he said, because whatever he said, I was like, I have no idea what that is. (laughs) Anyway, everybody laughs. Uh, Mary asks if Bertie is there to settle things with Edith, and McGee says, Mary, please. Right, which is... And Mary... Mary has never been rude past the bounds of propriety yeah like not at like a formal dinner like this you know like she might have said it in the library in an informal setting right but god forbid she you know bust up the sanctity of the dining room Mm -hmm. Bertie says that he hopes so but he mustn't jump the gun and smiles at edith mcgee asks what family Bertie has besides his mother and Bertie says that's it his father's dead and there are no siblings it's just him and mother McGee says that he was joking when he said she was cock-a-hoop, the mother, but she must feel a certain pride. Bertie says he wasn't joking, but they must judge for themselves when they meet her. Does cock-a-hoop mean excited? I think so. Or is it like a, a chicken in, in like, a hoop? Yeah, in a hoop. <laughs> like at the fair. I think it just means excited. <laughs> you throw a chicken through. <laughs> I think it just I think it just means excited, but in the vulgar way that implies that she cares about, you know, titles. Okay. I think is all that's being said there. Okay. Anyway, Branson says he talks as if they should be scared, and Bertie says that his mother makes Mr. Squeers look like look like Florence Nightingale. Uh, Mr. Squeers is the evil headmaster in Nicholas Nickleby, which I have never read. Which I can only think the Dowager would approve of. <laughs> That's probably true. Uh, and they all laugh. Even though that seems... I feel like that metaphor is very mixed and confusing. Uh, I agree, but let us move on. <laughs> Uh, Mrs. Patmore and Mrs. Hughes walk toward the house of ill repute and a weird paparazzo asks for a picture. Yeah. Like it makes, like he's just like, I, I have got a creepy lower class mustache and I want a picture. Mrs. Hughes says no inside. The niece says she's been there all day and Mrs. Patmore asks why she didn't call and warn them about the photographer and the niece apologizes to Auntie Beryl. And she was worried that she wouldn't come. Mrs. Patmore asks about the bookings, and the niece says all of them have canceled. Mrs. Patmore says all of them. The niece says one man wanted compensation for the ridicule. Mrs. Patmore loses her mind, yeah. saying she hopes that she told him what he could do with it. Mrs. Hughes tells Mrs. Patmore to calm down. Like, this is even beyond this. is like, ah, yeah. I have never seen her this angry. So angry. And yeah. again, Leslie Nichol is just like, Killing this horrible subplot. Right. She's going all out. No regrets. Mrs. Hughes says there's no harm done, uh, except for the fact that her B&B is, like, not being patronized. <laughs> right. That's – when you have a 100% vacancy rate, that's harm in, and, the, in, the, uh, in the hospitality industry. But Mrs. Hughes thinks can be solved by them having some tea. Well, we'll see. In the classroom, students arrive as tea. In the classroom. <laughs> 
Teach introduces Mosley, and he says good afternoon, and Teach will leave him to it. Mosley says they will explore the years between the Civil War of 1642 and, oh yes, and he goes to the chalkboard and continues the glorious revolution of 1688, almost half a century of social progress. One of the kids is passing a note as he says he hopes they find it as exciting as he does. And the note is a caricature of uh, Mosley. And it's accurate. Like, it's tough but fair. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, so the kids all giggle, and then when he turns around, they all play it cool. Edith and Bertie sit on a bench. She says he's quite free if he wants to be, but he doesn't want to be free. He says, of course, things have changed. He was in line for a quiet life, but now he's to be one of the kings of the county, fighting for causes, trying not to be disappointing. I mean, your name is Bertie, dude. You can't be that disappointing. That's a low <laughs> bar. Like... Edith thinks he'll make a good job of it. He's got a sound moral conscience. Bertie says yes, but what of courage? And will she help him? This is actually kind of romantic. It is, yeah. Edith asks if he's worried. Uh, it says Edith asks. Oh, his mother. I, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Edith asks if his mother's worried, and Bertie says the seventh Marquess of Hexham weds the daughter of the fifth Earl of Grantham. What could be more suitable? Mother will be thrilled. Edith says he talks of her a lot. And he admits that she's been an important figure in his life. But he doesn't agree with her about everything, which is not what anybody said. <laughs> right. Edith asks if she's stern, and Bertie says she believes rank carries responsibilities, as he does. That's why he needs Edith, to help him live up to his expectations. Edith says, they ought to go in. Tea will have started. I certainly don't have an illegitimate daughter, <laughs> if that's what you're asking. Ah! Indeed. Uh, Matthew Good drives up to Downton. Bom, bom, bom. <laughs> In the kitchen, Carson says, the husband has been bought off. And Patmore says, yes, he's settled out of court, if that's what you mean, you weirdo. Carson says that Patmore won't have to testify, and she agrees that that's what Officer Bummer said. I'm very curious about what else happened. Like, did they get a divorce? I genuinely couldn't tell you. Like, anyway. We've researched it, and it's all still baffling to me. <laughs> Uh, but she's still lost all of her bookings, and she's a laughing stock. Carson says he wondered about the whole thing from the beginning, and he's like, you did not, because they're planning to do the same thing. Again, I feel like this is a conversation between Baron Fellows and Neem. <laughs> Neem was like, you had them all do the same thing. <laughs> We're nearly to the bleeding end, Julian. I've just about had it. And then uh, he turned that into... <laughs> Carson says, well, then they'll have to be a lot more careful than Patmore was. How do you plan to be careful, Carson? Like, are you going to hire a private detective to investigate everyone before they stay at your B&B? That seems like a real ding to the prophets. Yeah. Anyway, Andy, who was also there, says that the front doorbell has rang. Branson and Bertie are doing a Punch and Judy show for the kids. Uh, Mary says that Punch is terribly fierce, and she doesn't think he's a good model for marriage. And Lord Grantham says, all relations with the law. Yeah. Uh, Branson finishes, apparently, by saying, and that's the way to do it. And everyone applauds, even though this is clearly the worst Punch and Judy <laughs> show of all time. Yeah. Although I'm not sure there's a major difference between the worst Punch and Judy show of all time <laughs> and the best Punch and Judy you show know, of all time. I think of like a good or bad Punch and Judy show. All I can think of is being John Malkovich when he does uh, Abelard and Heloise on the street for the kids <laughs> with those marionettes. <laughs> and he gets punched. And that's the way you do it. <laughs> 
Carson announces Matthew good. McGee says Mary didn't say he was coming. Mary says she didn't know he was. He says he was driving down from Durham and suddenly realized he'd be almost passing the gates. Rosamond asks what he was doing in Durham and he says various car things. Which, <laughs> like, come on, dude, you've had the whole drive. No, I know. To come up with a suitable lie. <laughs> yeah. God, these people are terrible at everything. <laughs> they are. Lord Grantham says that they haven't seen him since that awful day, and he hopes he's coping. Matthew Good says one doesn't have much choice. Aside, Mary asks Branson if he knew about this. Branson might have mentioned that if he was coming from Durham, he'd be quite close, <laughs> which, again, is completely the opposite of what Mary requested that he do. Yeah, I know. Like, even if she's being bitchy, even if you think she's wrong, it's her fucking house. It's her house and it's her decision. Like, feel free to attempt to convince her otherwise, but this is just, this is bullshit. When she's explicitly asked you not to, and it's like, I don't know, I'm just such a firm believer in people saying what they mean. Yeah. And, and I don't think she hasn't meant any of what she says. I agree. And like, even if you accept the premise that they are best for each other and will be happiest in the long term if they get together like give her a minute like she will if that's really true then she will eventually come to that conclusion on yeah. her own well and again i just don't buy the quickness of this yeah. of matthew good being like i can't live without you it makes sense in the sense that his best friend just died yeah and i feel like this whole thing was written on the theory that michelle dockery and matthew good would have this undeniable chemistry that would jump off the screen or whatever but then that didn't really turn out to happen you know who she did have that chemistry with who was that charles blake that's right <sighs> man i better write that fan fiction <laughs> so upset <laughs> mary says not to think she's amused she dislikes her hand being forced and branson says no one's forcing anything which is clearly untrue mcgee hopes that matthew good will stay the night and matthew good says mary and mary says perhaps he's in a hurry to get home he says nope <laughs> mcgee says it's settled and asks carson to tell hughes and have someone unpack for matthew good lord grantham is afraid matthew good is miss t but he says not to worry about that mary says i won't Matthew Good tells Bertie he heard about his cousin, and Bertie says he's on his way out there, but he wants to get some things settled. Matthew Good's if they are settled. Bertie says he thinks they will be. Matthew Good envies Bertie. Aside, Lord Grantham tells McGee that he thinks Matthew Good is miscalculated and Mary is cranky. Yeah. So once again, totally riveting scene. <laughs> In the classroom, the kids are all ramp. Did we learn anything new except reminding that Bertie well, and Matthew Good met one time? <laughs> That's important to know, Kelly. It hasn't been since last year's <laughs> Christmas special. In we already knew that because Matthew Good invited him specifically. I anyway. Know. Yeah. I'm furious. In the classroom. Kids, In the classroom. <laughs> the kids are all rambunctious and ignoring Molesley as he tries to talk about the struggle between king and parliament. The bell rings and everybody leaves as Molesley tries to give them some time charts he's drawn up. You got to give them the time charts at the beginning of the class. Like yeah. You can't do it at the end. Once the bell rings, you have no power you over have them. You have no power. And also, how did they just throw Mosley in here as a teacher without having him learn how to, like, deal with kids? Kids are dicks. Right. The, but that was the qualification. So it was like, listen, here you go. If you don't kill any of the kids in 12 months, you're hired. Like, <laughs> what, you know. On the stairs, Mary tells Branson that this is really not the way to win her over. Branson tells her to get off her high horse, which is pretty rich coming from you, buster. Yeah, also... She, her high horse is her whole, like, raison d'etre. Yeah. Like, 
She asks why he's interfering. He says it's because he loves her, and she says he's got a bloody odd way of showing it, which I agree with. I do agree. Matthew Good comes by and assumes that it's him they're fighting about, and Branson says it is, and Mary can dig herself out because he's had enough. Uh, dig herself out of the mess that you created? Fuck off, Branson. Yeah. Like, this, and I feel like I've been unfairly mad at Alan Leach, even though none of this is his actual fault. Right. But man, I'm mad at Alan Leach. <laughs> Mary asks Matthew Good if he brought his dinner jacket. He has. And Mary says he was very well-equipped to do his car things in Durham. <laughs> Matthew Good asks how many years she thinks it's taken him to find someone to spend his life with. And I'm like, uh, you know, probably all of them up until now. <laughs> right. How old are you? That many years. Mary says, living in my family house, working to preserve my estate, and being outranked by your own stepson. Matthew Good says he's tougher than he looks. And I'm like, so you concede that would be weird and difficult to deal with? Yeah. Yeah. Mary asks him not to make this harder than it has to be. Matthew Good said if she's trying to get rid of him, he's going to make it as hard and horrible as he can. So it's basically say anything. Right. So this is something we can all get behind and root for. Like him be uh, anyway, and physically like domineering her. Yeah, Mary says that he's being extremely unfair and walks away. And Matthew Good watches her go. And I just I don't like the implication that you can browbeat someone. I mean, I know that you can. Right. I know that you can. But this is the a implication strong that you should. Female character mm-hmm. that we all have feelings about, right. like whether they're pro or anti. Like I don't like her much in this episode, but historically speaking. You know, obviously she has her differences with Edith. Mm -hmm. I guess that's kind of like the understatement of the century. (laughs) But, I mean, she's somebody that we want to see happy. And if she's telling everyone, and by extension us, the audience, this is not what would make her happy. Right. I'm not saying there's not a situation where they could run into each other by chance. Mm -hmm. And her having a change of heart. Yeah. But this is, and she keeps saying, you know, oh, I don't like being manipulated. I don't like having my hand forced. No, granted, that's because she likes to be the one pulling all of the strings. Right. But it's also like she would never do this. Yeah. And, and just her telling everyone and everybody being like, you know, I don't, I don't believe you when you say how you feel. Mm -hmm. I just don't give that any validation at all. And that's, that's terrible. And if, as Julian Fellows himself has said, this is a show about women like becoming liberated. You know, at the end of the Edwardian era and World War One, then why are we having this regressive horseshit? Right. Agreed. Agreed. And I think, you know, I mean, I think there's this idea that People we're all supposed were to more be- fine with her not wanting to marry Matthew. Yeah. Than they are with her not wanting to marry Matthew Good. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's ridiculous, and it's you know, and 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 so much of it all could have still worked if it just didn't have everybody like. And again, I, I I feel like the ideas that we're supposed to see as the audience, like Mary being clearly, but it's I don't see that she's she's being she's being direct. She's saying there's nothing about her demeanor that means that she doesn't have the right to and make she these decisions a for herself. Issue. So, yeah. Okay, you're expecting a man. In mm-hmm. the year 1925, who is well-born, to be completely fine with being entirely financially dependent on her son? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying it's out of the question, but it's a c- completely valid point to raise. Right. Like one that she would have been raised to expect would be unacceptable to any man. Right. And so what happens in seven years when she's like, you know, I'm not really sure we can spend that much money on your cars anymore. Mm-hmm. What happens? That's a legitimate thing to be concerned about. 
This is why I gave up car racing before we got married. <laughs> you know, I never wanted you to. But I did. <laughs> I miss Charlie. <laughs> In her bedroom, McGee tells Rosamond that she wishes she knew what they should do. She's tempted to tell Bertie herself. Uh, no, man. Oh, my God. She wouldn't do that. She just says she's tempted. <sighs> Fine. <laughs> Rosamond asks if she thinks that Bertie is strong enough to stand up to his mother. Lord Grantham asks if they can't just leave it to Edith. I can't believe. Golly gumdrops. I'm agreeing <laughs> with Lord Grantham. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think... we just think... call this the golly gumdrops episode? <laughs> the case of the golly gumdrops. The golly gumdrops hour with Kelly and Tom. <laughs> Um, Golly gumdrops, I like that title. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, because, I mean, I, you know, McGee did be like, listen, I really, really, really think you should tell him. And she should have said that to Edith. But that done, now her job is done. That's all she can do. I agree. And they don't have a responsibility right. for the scandal. Yeah, They're all grown-up people, surely, as mm. Mrs. Hughes said. Are they? <laughs> That's a really good question. No. One this series has failed to adequately answer up to this point. Right. Anyway, Mary walks in just as uh, that happens, as Lord Grantham is saying that to let Edith tell him. And Mary walks in and says, tell him what? And Rosamond, and I got to give credit for this. Is like, oh, well, that Gregson made Edith his heir. Some men might not feel comfortable with that, mm-hmm. which is a damn good it's improvised answer. a very ex- good improvised yeah. answer. Yeah. Not great. Rosamond's outfit. <laughs> that That is true. Not great at all. It's really she's not. She's not. And I don't think she's changed her hair since 1912. I don't think she has either. You pointed that out. And yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. Because McGee has. McGee right. changed her hairstyle. And obviously Mary and Edith have. Sure, sure. But Rosamond's like, nope. <laughs> Victorian forever. If it was good enough for Marmaduke, it's good enough for me. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> Poor Marmaduke. I know. He did have a silly name. <laughs> Sillier than the Marquis of Hexham? <laughs> Sounds like a witch. <laughs> it does. I'm the Marquis of Hexham. <laughs> I of Newt, toe of Ward. <laughs> get it? Ward? Yeah, no, I, I did. Marigolds are Ward. <laughs> I, I did get well, that, Well, I yes. realize that saying it in that accent might make it difficult to hear. No, I... I I appreciate your consideration. Anyway, Mary asked McGee why she invited Matthew Good to stay. Matthew McGee says it was half past five and he was in North Yorkshire. Did she want him to pitch his tent under a tree? Uh, also, there, that's the point of a pub. Well, I, no, I, I agree. He could go stay in Mrs. Patmore's bed and breakfast. I think McGee's point was more if a well-born person happens along at that time of day, you kind of have to ask them to stay. Like, that's just the rules of society, you know. Mary says that he must have made some plan for his journey back from Durham. Yeah, did he bring a tent? <laughs> he brought a tent and a dinner jacket. <laughs> yeah, he's ready for anything. <laughs> the Boy Scouts. I was... Good job, Lord Baden-Powell. <laughs> Lord Grantham doubts that Matthew ever went to Durham. He came out there to see Mary. Good good work, Encyclopedia Brown. I've cracked the case. Golly, gumdrops, I've cracked the case. Bugs Meanie, you don't know the meanings. I don't remember what Bugs Meanie ever did anymore. Sorry. I used to know all of all Bugs Meanie's tricks. All I remember is that one time Encyclopedia Brown busted that girl for crying a single tear out of the wrong tear duct. Oh, yeah. I remember that, that one. That is literally the only thing. I And he had like a plucky lady sidekick. Yeah. Her name was something. <laughs> well, we better have a kid or something. I guess so. 
Anyway. Hey, kid, read all these books we used to like and get back to us. Yeah, and Bugs Meany had a Civil War replica sword, but he used the wrong name for the battle in the Civil War. Oh, bummer. And Encyclopedia Brown was like, busted. Also, a child wouldn't have that. That's weird. <laughs> you don't know. You might have had a weird uncle. <laughs> Bugs Meany probably did have a weird <laughs> His uncle. His name was Bugs Meany. I feel like he lived, like, in a shack or something. Like, you I know, think he was... Actually, that's a, like, running theme throughout all of children's literature is, like, the bad kids, like, are clearly from socioeconomically disadvantaged families. Yeah. And, like... That's why Maniac McGee is such a good book. Mm. Anyway. Yeah. I can well, literally like, talk about young adult fiction for hours. And like the best p- Christmas pageant ever tried to like confront that topic. Not well. No, I'm not saying it did Because those well. kids were still shitty in the Christmas pageant. <laughs> uh, but God still loved them? I don't know. It's been I a while. I don't know. I'm just surprised I didn't have a lice subplot. <laughs> that was always how my parents told us not to hang out with kids from a lower socioeconomic class. Yeah, but lice actually, you know, everybody ends up with them. I know. I didn't, though. Well, that was fortunate for you. Yeah, even though I swam in the public pool. <laughs> um, okay, so we've gotten astray here. I apologize. <laughs> well, Encyclopedia Brown has that effect on us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so anyway, Mary wants to know who says that Matthew Good came to see her, and Rosamond says the look in his eyes. Mary says that... What are you doing looking at his eyes, Rosamond? She's been lonely for a while. I feel so bad for her. I understand. Oh, come on. If you were in the room with Matthew Good, you wouldn't be looking at his eyes. I would want to be in the room where that happened. That's right. <sighs> Mary says, none of them think it's a good idea. A professional driver with nothing to his name. Lord Grantham says, then give him up. And Mary says she did until Mamar invited him to make himself at home. You did it until Branson, right. That's, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, didn't exactly say not to come visit. Right. I think she's being unfair on McGee here. Oh, everyone's unfair on McGee. I know. Except for McGee. And Bricker. And possibly Tio. <laughs> McGee says Mary can't expect them to be rude. The man's only crime is to love Mary. Mary says to just send them away as quick as they can. Which is a pretty bad crime. Yeah, that's a good point. It hasn't worked out well for almost anybody. It's carried the death penalty in the past. <laughs> Twice! <laughs> it's like Ted Hughes! <laughs> Who marries Ted Hughes or Mary Crawley on the third try? <laughs> Who's like, I like them odds! <laughs> I surely won't die in a random boating accident. Or car accident. Yeah. Just a tree falling on me. <laughs> It was Edith's tree. It fell on Matthew Good. Dooming them both to a life of unhappiness and or death. Lord Grantham says that Mary's right. None of them thinks it's a good idea. And Rosamond says maybe not, but she's clearly mad about him, whatever she says. Uh, she's not. She's not. She's That's not the mad fundamental ab- problem. I have watched the show Mad About You. <laughs> and she doesn't like anybody as much as anybody in that show liked anybody on that show right even like the neighbors across the hall right or like paul was it paul reiser paul reiser yeah that's ah, correct remember when helen hunt was a movie star for like a half a second mm-hmm. it was as good as it got <laughs> <laughs> you're fired uh can we say that now that donald trump is running for president uh, I think it's fine. Yeah, people can be fired regardless of their affiliation right. with NBC. And it's like, he's never, like, cause when he, cause he does like, you're fired. He has yeah. like the whole thing and you don't, you're not doing, no, I'm not it doing doesn't that. seem like an you illusion. You were just fired. Right. On my authority. Right. Cause I'm the Mary of my own life. <laughs> and you would listen to me if I said you were fired. Yeah, that's true. You wouldn't though. Well. But we have a long history. Yeah. And you know that I'm nuts. <laughs> right. Don't worry. 
cousin a dot c <laughs> will be married forever that's fine i'm not fired i've got a union it's no problem you have a union yeah it's just me <laughs> all right i'm gonna call my lawyer after we're done with this so let's keep going I'm gonna call my union rep <laughs> in the kitchen what is it just your dad <laughs> no it's just me again I, oh my God. i'm the only one in the union it's tough What's the name of the union? <laughs> International Brotherhood of Spouses of Kelly. <laughs> That's good to know. Are you saying I can have more than one? Uh, apparently, hmm. we could use the dues, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best joke that's ever happened. <laughs> All right. Okay. Back to this recap. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk about the dues later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the kitchen, Daisy asks Molesley how teaching was. Molesley says, uh... He sees everyone looking at him and he says it was quite a challenge. Baxter says, there's always another day. And Molesley's like, yes, I know. Uh, I've got to go check on some things. Bye. Like, I mean, it wasn't as bad as the day that he burned his hand in front of Lady Shackleton. Yeah, that's so I think we can all count this. It's not asphalting the road. Right. Again, all these people have had perfectly cromulent opportunities to lie and have prepared a lie. Yeah. And I don't, I'm not like condoning lying. No. I'm just saying if you're going to lie, make it a good one. Yeah. In the green room. In the green room. <laughs> which we are pretty sure is the drawing room. And right. I'm not sure how this is only coming up now. I've always been confused, but I think I've just always called it random rooms before in the hopes that I was correct. All right. Well, we're going to get one of these days a uh, architectural ground plan <laughs> of Highclere Castle. Sounds good. Uh, Lord Grantham asks Bertie how he's getting to Tangiers, and he says he's flying. For the first bit, anyway, Lord Grantham is startled. Rosamond doesn't envy him. Lord Grantham doesn't know. He dares that he dares say they'll all be flying hither and thither before too long. Is that a phrase? Hither and thither? I think hither and thither. Oh, you just had a typo. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. Hither and thither. Yeah. That is better. (laughs) Rosamond says she rather doubts that because old-timey people didn't know stuff. We haven't had a solid one of those in a while. We haven't had one of them in a while. Uh, To the extent that it took me off guard. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Aside, Matthew Good tells Edith... He likes how Bertie makes no bones about the fact that he's there to see her. Uh, Edith knows. And also, Matthew Good, Edith didn't say, Bertie, I don't like you, Bertie. Quit coming to see me, Bertie. Right. Matthew Good says the same could be said of him, but he's not doing as well. Edith hopes he knows what he's doing because Mary is quite a handful. Also, listen to her. Mm-hmm. Okay, Matthew Good? Mm-hmm. Listen to this lady. She knows what is up. Yeah. Bertie walks up and asks who's a handful. Edith says her beloved sister. Matthew Good says that she's beloved by him anyway. There's a lot of asides here. There are. This is they- practically a production of Macbeth. <laughs> uh, or it's really like almost like, like it's calling back to the old Altman thing where there's all these overlapping conversations happening, except the dialogue is clean. Who tells Branson she likes Bertie? Mary. Right? Okay. Well, nobody else is talking to Branson. Aside, Mary tells Branson that she likes Bertie, but when you see them together, Branson says, meaning. Mary says that if Matthew Good was Marquess of Hexham, there wouldn't be a woman in England who wasn't setting her cap at him. Ouch. Yeah. She's calling Bertie ugly, which, okay, here's what I'll say. Yeah. In this episode, I was all like, ooh, Bertie. I was like, you look good. You look fine, Bertie. And then Matthew Good showed up, and I was like, yeesh. <laughs> yeah, it was Bertie. Like, yeah, like, it, it was- is them 
in the same room talking. Right. It is like just, it's just, you know. It's just like some like green light was shining on Bertie's face. <laughs> it was like, ah. No, he looks like Gollum. <laughs> yeah. Branson asks if Mary would set her cap at him because if that's why she's not, shame on her. Uh, Mary says to stop lecturing her and walks out and then Matthew Good excuses himself to follow her against her wishes to say things she does not want to listen to. And that brings us to our first recurring segment. With It's uh, Fashion Backwards with our very own aviation authority, Kelly. Thank you, Tom. It's lovely to be here. <laughs> All right. So today we are going to talk about commercial airlines so as we all know the birthplace of flight is dayton ohio where in the year 1913 right 1903 1903 1913 was the flood yes and wright state university did a musical about both the wright brothers (laughs) and the great dayton flood and i can never keep the dates straight as a result they are the only two things that ever happened in dayton they invented the cash register no that's true uh, I don't know what year, but... Yeah. Okay. Really more refined it. Anyway. So we're just going to talk a little bit about the beginnings of commercial air flight, which, uh, as Rosamond points out, was terrifying. <laughs> because basically, and this is true both in the post-World War One and post-World War Two eras, all of the commercial flights were just on decommissioned military craft. Mm. Um, you know, it wasn't like they were necessarily like going out and like being like, let's make these chappies comfortable. They were like, <laughs> ah, it was good enough for the doughboys. It's good enough for you. <laughs> so the first airline in the world was Deutsche Luftschifffahrts. I'm not even going to try. <laughs> I'm not even going to give it a shot. It is too German. <laughs> it's too German. It's too German. Uh, anyway, it was founded on November 16th, 1909 uh, in con- uh, in cooperation with the government. And uh, the airships were manufactured by the Zeppelin Corporation. Um, and its headquarters were in Frankfurt. And the first fixed-wing scheduled air service was started on January 1st, 1914 from St. Petersburg. (laughs) I got German on the brain. I understand. From St. Petersburg, Florida to Tampa, Florida, which is unlikely, but it is what happened. I'm surprised. Um, And then the four oldest non-dirigible airlines that still exist are the Netherlands' KLM, Colombia's Avianca, Australia's Qantas, and Polish Aerotarg. So that may be uh, how Charles Blake got to Poland. (laughs) He took the old Aerotarg. And also the Czech Republic's Czech Airlines. Boring. Mm, I know. Uh, Okay. So these all pretty much uh, got started in 1920. Okay. uh, The non-dirigible ones. So Mm -hmm. we're talking about actual airplanes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was a guy named George Holt Thomas uh, who in 1916 started the Aircraft Transport and Travel, which was the earliest fixed-wing airline in Europe. Uh, he took a fleet of former military biplanes and he modified them to carry two passengers in the fuselage. Um, and he flew in 1919 a proving flight across the English Channel despite lack of support from the British government, <laughs> which you would honestly think like, oh, the Germans are starting commercial airlines. Perhaps we also might want to start commercial airlines. Next, you'll want us to make Knockwurst. (laughs) I mean, it's delicious. (laughs) I don't know that that's true. Yeah, it may not be. 
Uh, so yeah, so that all worked out. A Lieutenant H. Shaw flew the plane and, uh, he landed in Paris and the flight took two hours and 30 minutes and it cost 21 pounds per passenger. So I like a lot. I I agree, but that's, you know, I mean, well, yeah, it was the first one. Yeah. It was like the first iPhone. Yeah. Or like when Lance Bass went to space. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so the aircraft transport and travel also won the first British civil airmail contract. And uh, they had six Royal Air Force Airco DH-9A aircraft lent to them by the government to operate the airmail service. Uh, then they established a couple other ones in England, Hanley Page Transport. And then uh, there was also a French airline called Society de l'Attaque, later known as Aeropostale, which is now oh, a successful okay. clothing store. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it actually started in late 1918 going mm. to Spain. Um, there was another one called Society Generale des Transports Aliens was created in late 1919 by the Farman Brothers. Oh, well, sure. You've heard of. Oh, yeah. We've all heard of the Farman We've Brothers. We've all heard of them. Uh, and they flew things, uh, from Toulouse-Lenoble to Kenley near Croydon, England. So, okay. Okay. Great. Great. Good for them. Uh, another French Good airline. Good for Croydon. Was the Compagnie des Messengeries Aliens. Established in 1919 by Louis Charles Bruget, and they offered a mail and freight service between Le Bruget Airport in Paris and Lesquin Airport, Lille, wherever the hell that is. Lille's in France. L-I-L-L-E. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, sometimes when I read Paris, I just think France. (laughs) Yeah, I understand. So, I mean, clearly it was a lot more common to be delivering goods than it was to be delivering people Mm -hmm. at that point. Um, There's several other ones, uh, notably... Dutch airline KLM made its first flight in 1920, and they still actually exist, which yes. is why I mentioned them. They show up in uh, Crosswords a yeah. lot. Um, so by the 1920s, the early 1920s, the small airlines were just struggling to compete, and there was a movement towards increased rationalization and consolidation. So in 1924, there was an Imperial Airways formed from a merger of Instone Airline Company, British Marine Air Navigation, Daimler Airway, and Handley Page Transport Company Limited uh, to allow the British airlines to compete with stiff competition from French and German airlines, which were enjoying heavy government subsidies. So again, British government was just like, Nope. <laughs> Fuck you guys. We are not giving you any money. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, that's really all that happened uh-huh. in the time period that we're talking. Like, oh, well, people right. were like, oh, we could fly people from place to place. We should all get together. We should consolidate our resources. And uh, then in 1926, you start getting much uh, more ambitious flights okay. happening. There's a guy named Alan Cobham who surveyed a flight route from the UK to Cape Town, South Africa. Mm. Uh, he then followed that up with another proving flight to Melbourne, Australia, which is Whoa. pretty far. Yeah. Um, and so I, what makes me curious about this is how Birdie got to Tangiers. Yeah, that sounds interesting. And it's like, did he it's just like, fly to France? Right. And then take a boat? Because otherwise, I'm not totally sure because they yeah. weren't doing these long range flights at the time. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so there's a little bit more stuff because I mean, there were airships happening that were not planes. Obviously, the Hindenburg. Right, right. Um, and I'm wondering if maybe that's what Birdie was doing because I mean, I guess he didn't specifically say he didn't, but. It's hard to say. Um, 
And there's a lot of detail that we're not going to get into with regard to craft that was lighter than air and heavier than air. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But like a lot of the stuff that they used in World War One were lighter than air aircraft right, that right, were right. made out of, you know, canvas and wood mm-hmm. versus the heavier than air, which you do wind up with a lot of like the dirigibles and zeppelins because, you know, in order for there to be, uh, you know, a passenger area big enough to make it worth going, say, across the Atlantic, mm-hmm. you had to have this be heavier than air. And then, of course, you're dealing with gases in the chamber that are lighter than air. So yeah, yeah. that is for another day. Okay. That has been fashion backwards. All right, well, about thank you. commercial airlines, which wasn't really that helpful. As it turns because out, because we still don't know exactly how we got to Tangiers. Yeah, well, none of us ever know how we got to Tangiers. You know, you just show up. The fishermen are bringing in the nets, and you're like, "I'm home." Yeah. You're like, so this is an international zone, eh? <laughs> no maritime law for me. <laughs> That's right. They're like, "Yes, what drugs and/or sex would you like?" Young men, <laughs> you are now in ten years. I said, "Young men, fishermen's buy you beers." I said, "Young men, <laughs> it's so cool to see." These guys. Okay. Yeah, that was fun. That's what I got. (laughs) (laughs) On the stairs, Matthew Good tells Mary to wait. He says he made a mistake. He thought he could present his case more effect, more persuasively in person. Mary says she can't bear to be maneuvered. Matthew Good thinks that they love each other very much. Uh, okay. Great. Yeah. Like, Uh, I think I love you very much because we've discussed it. Right. And said so. And we have passion in our eyes when we look at each other. Right. I mean, not so much, you know, it's been like 12 years. <laughs> well, but. sure. But yeah, Mary does not, there's not, that is not coming from, I mean, or even Matthew at Good that much. At every point of this relationship, she's been like, ugh. Yeah. Blech. <laughs> she's like, I'm not so into you. <laughs> Matthew Good says that Mary is fighting it, but he isn't. He says that his birth is respectable, which forces him to believe that the problem is his lack of money and position, and asks if she isn't better than that. It seems rather small of her. He thinks that not marrying a man for lack of money is the same as marrying a man for money. Like, kind of? Kind of, yes, but not But also, it's very acceptable to marry a man for his money in this society, in this milieu. Mary pushes past him, and he's like, am I not right? And Mary says that he is pushed in uninvited, all in order to call her a grubby little gold digger. Which I think she's deliberately misinterpreting his words, but he does kind of need to be taken down a peg. Yeah. Uh, so she heads upstairs and goes into her room and then leans against the inside of the door, uh, you know, like you do. On Presumably having a reaction that we're supposed to care about. Yeah. At Bates Cottage, Anna says Mary loves Matthew good, but can't control him. And that's what frightens her. I mean... That's true, actually. I was going to say she can control him, but he has just burst in on her. Yeah. Bates says Mary is a bit of a bully, and Anna says yes, but there's another side to her, and Matthew Good sees that. Okay. <laughs> right. Bates says, so then Anna was wrong about him, and she thinks she was. Bates smiles. Anna asks why, and he says, show me a man that doesn't smile when his wife admits she's wrong. This scene brought to you by the patriarchy, still ruining lives in 2016. The patriarchy. Spokesperson, Bates. In the upstairs hall, Bertie walks with Edith, and Bertie asks if she will send him to bed happy. She says that sounds like an indecent proposal. She knows all about those. She does. She's had them. He asks her to let her to let him go to Tangiers with a sense that his tomorrows are beginning. Edith says that she loves him. She's been in love before. She won't deny it, but she really does love him. 
Bertie says that he'll take that as a yes, but Edith says the trouble is she's not as simple as she used to be. Her life is not as simple. She just needs to be sure she's being realistic. But Bertie says he'll still take it as a yes and kisses her. How has he not, like, figured this out? And also, okay, your point. This is a key moment because the whole rest of this episode implies that Edith did say yes. And she does not say yes. Mm -hmm. Like, and everybody... And as to the extent that I, I, but I, everybody acts like just glosses over that completely. Well, they've been glossing over it from the beginning. Yeah. And, but she does not say yes here. And she does make it clear that there's still more she has to say. Uh huh. And that's going to be completely ignored, but it's totally true. And anyway. So the whole show is brought to us by the patriarch. <laughs> we've dedicated many years of our lives to this. Yeah. But you know, we've been mostly making fun of it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> At breakfast, Mary comes in, which is weird, which Lord Grantham says she's down early and Mary says she isn't and asks where Matthew Good is. Uh, like, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Branson says that he's gone. He had something in London that evening. Mary turns and just stares at a painting for a minute, <laughs> which is a totally sane reaction to everything that's happened. Yeah. And here's what I'll say for Michelle Dockery, like from this scene and through the rest of the episode, like she looks just like dazed and like mm-hmm. can't even deal with what's going on inside her own mind yeah. in a way that I found, you know, effective for okay. the role. Lord Grantham sees this and heads out, saying he has a mass of letters to write, <laughs> which I guess is what he's always doing in the library. Yeah, he doesn't send them to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, wouldn't these be exciting for George to read? He just writes them to, you know, dogs that he's owned over the years. <laughs> he leaves them at their graves. <laughs> oh man. Bertie says he's sorry that Lord Grantham has just left because they've got some news and he was waiting for Mary to join them. Maybe she did say yes at some point off screen. Maybe. It seems, I agree with you. That yeah. It seems weird. Uh, but like, why would he say he's got some news if she didn't? But he said he would take it as a yes. And so he's operating as if she said yes because he took it as yes. Okay. Is my, uh, but okay. yeah. Yeah. Look. Heck, maybe the American version had some extra thing that we don't know. This is a plot hole that you could drive any number of cars through. <laughs> uh, just Careful! Be- <laughs> I was just before they explode. Uh, okay, so Edith says it's not the right moment, which it clearly is not. Mary asks Carson for more coffee. Carson goes out and then asks why it isn't the right moment. Edith says that Matthew Good has abandoned Mary. Mary says no. She wanted him to go. Uh, Edith is like, uh, that's not what it looks like. You were just staring at a painting. <laughs> You've never looked at a painting the whole time we've lived here. <laughs> it ruined the visitor's tour. <laughs> <laughs> Mary says, well, that's how it is. Branson says there's no need for this. If Edith's news is good, they're very happy for them both. Adding... Aren't we, Mary? And like Mary shrug here. We need a gif of this. We do. It is insane. Yeah. Edith tells Bertie that the one thing that Mary can't bear is when things are going better for Edith than for Mary, which I'm not about to defend what Mary does in this episode. <laughs> no, no. However, Edith, you basically put the ball up on a tee, walked Mary over there, and then keyed her up to swing. <laughs> Bertie says he's sure that's not true. Edith says he doesn't know Mary. Uh, again, this is also not the right moment for this. Yeah. It's well, just, nobody talk for the rest of the breakfast. But this is the way things go with these long-term, you know, relationships that hate each other. Yeah. They just know how to, you know, bait each other and then they do it. 
She turns to Mary and says that she, Edith, is getting married. Well, so so now Edith's saying that she's definitely getting married. Right. It's true. Which is true. Uh, but, you know, she's also just doing it because she sees the chance. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all very messy. She points out that Mary lost her man and Mary can't stand it. Branson tries to intervene and Mary says that Edith is wrong. She's very happy for Edith and she admires Bertie. Not everyone would accept Edith's past. Branson says, Mary, don't. Which, like, okay, it looks too late, dude. No, it is too late. Bertie asks what she means, and Mary says Edith must have told him. Bertie says, told him what? Mary says about Marigold, who she really is. Bertie looks at Edith, who says that Marigold is her daughter. Long pause. Bertie stands up and leaves. Mary picks up a newspaper and, like, does a real, like, Michelle Dockery does an amazing job of, like, being Mary, knowing she went too far, but being like, "Mm, yeah, I'm good. Yeah. I I'm, was totally justified. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, she really does. And well, and that's the thing, too, is that also that Edith has somehow can like, because as far as Edith knows, Mary still is in the dark about Marigold. Mm-hmm. And that's why she doesn't realize Mary has this card to play. Mm-hmm. Even though, as Branson points out later, Mary's not an idiot. Like, she was going to figure this Unlike out. Unlike Bertie, apparently. <laughs> right. Oh, you have a ward that you are naturally attached to. That's completely normal. He probably doesn't realize that his cousin was gay. (laughs) (laughs) I was just taking all these euphemisms at face value. (laughs) From you, okay? I learned it from watching you. Painting fishermen doesn't seem any any weirder than shooting pheasants. (laughs) I don't know what us rich people do. In the library, Hugh com- Hughes comes in and says that Bertie's asked for a taxi and Carson has gone out. McGee is shocked. Lord Grantham asks what's happened and can Edith drive him to the station? But then is like, oh yeah, this is not Hughes's problem and says, don't wa- bother about it. He'll sort it out. Rosamond asks Hughes how Patmore is and Hughes says she's still very upset but there's nothing to be done. Lord Grantham asks if this is about her B&B going down the drain. Golly gumdrops! Is this about the B&B going down the drain? McGee says not to be flippant. Golly gumdrops! There's nothing flippant about golly gumdrops! (laughs) Rosamond suggests having tea at the B&B and letting people see them. McGee says, what a good idea. Why didn't she think of it? And she really is like, why didn't I think of that? Yeah, I mean, you can only sew so many cat pillows. <laughs> Although I guess she's running the hospital or whatever now. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Lord Grantham asks if they'll have to be in the papers, and Rosamond says it'll be the local papers, and it wouldn't be any more of a story than them being photographed at a flower show. McGee asks if Patmore would agree. Hughes thinks Patmore would be bowled over, so McGee says it's settled. Isabel is having tea with Crookshank. Out on her lawn. Boo. Crookshanks Lane. Lane. Lawn. lawn. Yeah. It's been a really long day, everybody. Yeah. Crookshanks says Isabel seems very suspicious of her. Isabel says she must admit that Crookshanks' attitude is a volte face. A which volt foss. Oh, a volt foss. Which I know because I watched the episode. I wouldn't have. I also watched the episode, but I didn't hear her say volt foss. Well, I had the subtitles on mine. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. I did not, which yeah. is why I didn't understand what macrame or whatever <laughs> was when they said it. Right. Crookshank says she wants Larry's father to be content. Isabel asks if Larry wants Murty to be content in this way with her. Crookshank says, well, you know men. And Isabel says, I'm not sure I do as it happens. Tell me about them. She's approaching Maggie Smith levels of awesomeness. Well, she's been learning. Crookshank says they dig themselves into a position, often without considering all the options. 
Isabel asks if Crookshank has considered the options. And if she knew about air quotes, she would have used them at this moment. <laughs> Crookshank believes so. Isabel says, here's an option. She won't get back with Murdy unless invited to do so by Larry himself. Crookshank says that she speaks for Larry, but Isabel says she doesn't want Crookshank to speak for him. She wants to hear Larry Grace speak for himself. Boom. Mic drop. Isabel out. Yeah. She's finally learned to use her meddling for good. That's right. In the kitchen, Carson says he doesn't In the kitchen. <laughs> want the family linked with the scene of adultery. Pat- uh, there have been numerous scenes of adultery in this house. I agree. I'd also like to point out, this is far from the last scene of Carson making this complaint. It is ridiculous. <sighs> Look, we're going to get through it. <laughs> There's a bunch of good stuff happening. There is, definitely. Um, I mean, that thing with Edith and Mary was pretty fun by mm-hmm. itself. Uh, Patmore says she wants to bury the adultery story and she needs an event to bury it under. Carson asks if she has no qualms about dragging the family into the mud. And Hughes points out that they're all grown people, surely. Who volunteered to do a nice thing for their goddamn cook? Yeah. And then Carson says that he's always known that women were ruthless, but he didn't think he'd find the proof in his own wife. Like, damn, dude. Like, what? The Oracle was like, you know, there's not enough douchebaggery in this episode. <laughs> of husbands towards wives. Everyone's gotten a bit soft. Yeah. And I'll actually say this for Jim Carter, too, because he does this thing, and I, I, I feel like I've seen Carson do this a few times, when he feels like he's gone too far, even though he thinks he was right, and he just sort of like is like, hmm, and goes out of the room. He and Lady Mary yeah. doing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Carson. <laughs> oh, Mary. <laughs> I don't know why I'd have to. They're pretty much always in the same house. <laughs> they, they generally are, yeah. Uh, Patmore says that there she was, thinking the family was kind to come to the rescue. And Hughes rolls her eyes and says, and they are being kind. Just tell them yes and arrange the day. I don't know why Mrs. Patmore ever listens to Mr. Carson. I know. He ain't her supervisor. I know. I know. Branson and Lord Grantham watch Bertie and Edith walking on the lawn. Branson says that he'll miss his train. Lord Grantham says, let him. I mean, he has to go to Tangiers regardless. Right. Uh, he asks what happened. His cousin isn't getting any debtor. That's true. Yeah. And he's already been buried. Yeah. Branson says Mary thought Edith had told him about Marigold. Lord Grantham asks how Mary found out. Branson says she's not stupid, but does conveniently leave out the part where he confirmed it verbally. <laughs> right. Lord Grantham says Mary is not always kind either, but was it really a mistake? Branson asks what difference that makes, and I am inclined to agree because, you know... Yeah. Well, and wasn't Lord Grantham the one who was like, let Edith handle this? Yeah, yeah. So, Bertie and Edith are out on the lawn talking, and Bertie says that it's not that he's shocked exactly. And he's like, and he really is like, it's not the, like, you having a baby, I'm a grown-up, I get that these things Mm -hmm. happen, Was is the implication there. Edith says that he has to protect the honor of his family. And then Bertie says it's not even that, it's that she should have told him this whole story from the beginning. She hasn't been fair to him, and Edith agrees, and she says she supposes she thought it might ruin everything. Bertie says that she didn't trust him, and Edith says that she couldn't have. Mm-hmm. Bertie asks if she'd have married him in a lie, and Edith says she doesn't think so, but they'll never know now. Bertie says that he doesn't feel he could spend his life with someone that he didn't trust. Edith says that she's terribly sorry, but that doesn't mean much, does it? Her life was about to be perfectly wonderful, and now she's throwing it all away. Not to be an asshole, but you do own a magazine and that dope apartment. Yeah, and she also really liked Bertie. And presumably Mrs. Gregson, <laughs> wherever she is. <laughs> That's right. 
I forgot about Mrs. Gregson. Everyone forgot about Mrs. Gregson. She wants to burn down her husband's house with his new wife in it. But what's she supposed to do? Yeah. Wow. Good Lord. Um, <laughs> anyway, Bertie says he'd better go. Anita says that she doubts they'll meet again. So she wants to say good luck. And Bertie says good luck to her, too. He means that. And, like... They both, like, instinctively, like, want to kiss each other, and they're like, oh, wait, we can't do that anymore. So you should probably just stay together, guys. I know. they have come on. This scene... They have hella chemistry. Yeah. All the chemistry that you would think that Mary and Matthew Good should have, they have it. Yeah. That's why they have no chemistry. Yeah. No, I love... Well, that and Charles Blake. Well, right. No, but I... I have a whole chart. (laughs) Yeah. But this Edith and Bertie scene, I love it. They're both just so on the same page. Edith is not at all trying to, like... They're like Edith is like yeah. They're I'm sorry. being adults they're in being... a way that people rarely are on this show. Yeah, yeah. I they're really... living up to Mrs. Hughes's expectation for adults. Yeah. No, I really liked it. I think that Edith played it as well as she possibly could mm-hmm. have. And I mean, what are you gonna do? But at the same time, this is like when you left my computer at JFK. <laughs> you know, like I was mad. You were, but it wasn't like we were gonna get divorced. Yeah. Although I did briefly consider it. Right. But we were already married. We See, were that's already married. Thing. That's also true. It does change the dynamic. Yeah. But I don't know. <sighs> but I just, feel like this is a thing that happens a lot on TV, potentially in life, when people are like, oh, like you lied to me about this one thing. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that generally holds up. I think, I think you're reality. right. But I mean, and that's what you can see in this whole scene is both of them are like, they're both playing it the way they think they ought to play it. And they're both on the exact same page about how they ought yeah. to play this situation. Get together, you two. He's shaking his fist at the heavens. I am. You can't see it. Right. It, it's a podcast. That's not very helpful. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm more like, I'm more shipping them now that they've broken up than I was even before. That's how ships work, Tom. Well, I know. It's even better when they never have gotten together in the first place. <laughs> have you read my Avatar The Last Airbender fan fiction? Uh, I've read the part that you've written so far. Uh, well, you know, I'm a very busy person. I have a full-time job and a podcast and a comedy thing that I'm doing. Just, so I don't know what happened to Sokka. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I know exactly what happened to him. And maybe if you're lucky, someday I'll tell you. Maybe so. Mary is sitting in the estate office and Branson walks in and says she's got what she wanted. Edith, won't we? The next Marchioness of Hexham. Like, this is what I don't like about the way the Brits do it. Yeah. Because it should be a Marquis and a Marquess. I... But instead it's a Marquess and a Marchioness. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Also, Branson, who taught you the word Marchioness? Uh, yeah. It wasn't the Irish revolutionaries he was hanging out with. No, but this well, is... Well, unless the, like... they were telling him who to kill. Right. But that's the, yeah, like England, like speak French or don't speak French. Mm -hmm. Get it together. Make up your damn mind. Although we say that being from a place that has, you know, Versailles, Ohio. (laughs) So at any rate, Mary says that's not what she wanted. How would she to know that Edith hadn't told him? Which is a played out new Jack horse crap. It is. Because even if she did think that she told him, it is not appropriate to discuss at breakfast. Right. It absolutely is. Branson says not to play the innocent, as we have just done. Yeah. <laughs> Mary starts to say something, but Branson yells at her not to lie. She can't <laughs> stop ruining things for Edith or herself. She'd pull her, she'd pull in the sky if she could anything to make her feel less frightened and alone. I have not gotten at any point in this entire series, meaning series six, yeah. 
that Mary has been particularly unhappy. About being alone in particular, yes. Like, she seems pretty much fine. Right. You know, she was getting blackmailed in the first episode. She wasn't keen on that. Yeah. No, well, there's, and what Mary is about to say in this scene that's saying, oh, you don't want to understand me. And that really sums up to me what everybody is doing to Mary. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I, it, it's Which really isn't the, to defend her in what she did to oh, eat it. Yeah, not well, but that's the thing. Like everybody's like, oh, you know, you ruined your sister's life, and also you won't get with Matthew Good. Yeah, like that's what everybody's yeah, saying. Isn't it enough that she ruined Edith's life? Yeah, apparently not. I guess not. It's just Edith. She's like the Kesha of this show. <laughs> Edith is right. Mary says that Branson saw Matthew Good being bullying, heavy-handed, and unapologetic. Is she expected to lower herself to his level and be grateful? And I'm like, really, honestly, if he's being bullying, heavy-handed, and unapologetic, he's just being exactly who you are. Yeah. Which I would also agree is not a good match. Nah. You have to complement each other, not compete. Agreed. Branson says, lower yourself. You're not a princess in the prisoner of Zenda, which I guess is like a video game. (laughs) Mary says that he doesn't yeah. want to understand Your princess her. is in another castle. Yeah. Branson says she ruined Edith's life today. How many lives is she going to wreck? Mary says, as many as I have to. <laughs> Mary says she refuses to listen. And Branson says she's a coward like all bullies and walks out. And I guess here's what I'm trying to say. Okay. I totally agree with his assessment that she's a cowardly bully. Yeah. That's not yeah. in question. Right. I don't think it's because she feels frightened and alone. I think she is just that way right I, it's no, how she, she was raised it is how she was raised when she feels like she it she needs to maintain her power and authority and this is the way that she's chosen to do it and it's mm-hmm. not a good way but that's she she wound up in this you know this this path and yeah again she doesn't she doesn't need a man she never has she, she never, never has, has needed a man and Edith they're all kind like of, she, yeah edith needs does, Edith, I'm not saying look, she needs a man, but Edith, more than Mary. Edith wants a partner. Yeah. Mary wants someone who will submit to her. Yeah. Which is a fine way to be. Yeah. If you find the right person. Yeah. But Matthew Good, that's the real problem. He insists on being her equal when she knows that he's not. Right. And that, I think, is the real issue. Yeah. And nobody will let it be the real issue. Yeah. Because that can absolutely be the issue and not even have anything to do with the money. Right. Even though I think it's foolish to ignore the money. Right. He is kind of a grubby mechanic and Sybil wouldn't have had a problem with that. Mm -hmm. But Mary does. Mary has always been very much about how they look. Remember when she used to be an asshole to McGee for being American? Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's all of these things... Mary is just acting like Mary has always acted. Right. And Granted, she's s- being more of a bitch in this episode, which right. I think is not supported by the text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's fun to watch. It is fun to watch, yeah. But I mean, you know, that's you can say that you don't like that about her, which is perfectly fair, but it is how she is, and it doesn't mean that Matthew Good is right for her. You mean that Matthew Good is right for the person you imagine Mary you want Mary to be. Mm-hmm. But that's not who she is. This is where I'd like to say, I think there is like this really charitable reading of Downton Abbey as a whole, mm-hmm. where sort of like pre-World War One, there's this sense of urgency and, you know, the entail being up in the air and mm-hmm. there were stakes. Yeah. And then after the war, the aristocracy started to lose their power. Right. And so their stakes got lower and their like lives got more boring to us. Mm-hmm. 
I think that is a charitable reading that I don't think the show actually lives up to. I agree, but I, it is... I, and I don't even know that that's actually what Julian Fellows wanted to do. Right. I don't think it is, but there are these signs there. There's these, you know, things having lower and lower stakes. Things like Lord Grantham saying in this season, they don't care what we think anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, about, like, the hospital and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like... Which, but at the same time, so if you compare this with Gosford Park... Mm-hmm. It's clear that those stakes were still there for some people mm-hmm. in the 1930s. Yeah. And I don't know if it's simply a function of they're still in this sort of transitional period or what the deal is. But the people in Gosford Park, by and large, mm-hmm. never let go of the stakes of the first two seasons of Downton Abbey. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels to me as if virtually everyone in the show has completely let go of those stakes. Well, I think Julian Fellows has fallen into the trap that is one of the easiest traps to fall into as an author of liking your characters, which you kind of have to do as an author, as I understand it. I'm not an author myself, but it seems that way that, you know, you have to understand what, what they, who they are, why they do what they do. And so you end up liking them. And so you end up, you know, that's what's happened in Downton Abbey, you know, Thomas is less evil. I guess Mary's turned out to be more evil, but just randomly for this one episode. Yeah. You know, like people start getting along that didn't used to get along and everybody's fine with gay people now and, and on and on and on. And so the stakes become lower because everybody becomes more reasonable and likable. But it's indicative of this lack of integrity. Yeah. I think, you know, and again, I'm also not an author, but it's like if I had a show that ran for six seasons, you can be damn sure I would be like, you know, even this podcast, I mean, it's grown and changed. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we've reversed some positions, but I think we, we view ourselves as people who have an opinion about Downton Abbey mm-hmm. that we take seriously. Yeah. Despite the jocular <laughs> tone that we often adopt. I mean, right. we, we feel strongly about the choices that are made mm-hmm. and we are critical and we sometimes praise the choices and we sometimes don't. But we wish that Julian Fellows treated this show with the same respect and integrity that we feel toward it. Mm -hmm. Because, again, we've gone back, we've watched the show, we've listened to old podcasts that we recorded. Mm -hmm. And it's just so different. Yeah. And the stakes are so low as to be laughable. Yeah. And, again, it would be great. Because I think actually upstairs, downstairs, the new batch <laughs> right. is a really good example yeah. of yeah. these people who are kind of clinging to a certain lifestyle and the mm-hmm. the changes and the sacrifices that they have to make in order to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like Lady Percy isn't going to get anything nice for her coming out if her sister doesn't gift her a diamond star. Like, right. and well, and you see the push and the pull of the class inequity there. In a way, we're here. Yeah, you don't at all. They're oh, they're basically all living their best life, and yeah, it is, yeah. it's it's barely even consequential that well, they're employed again, by the people upstairs. Like we say, the few exceptions we see are just like insane blackmailers mm-hmm. or the homely liberal or whatever. Like, and it just yeah, yeah. Well, but I'm talking specifically about the people who work at the house. Well, right. There are no expectations or stakes put upon any of them anymore. Yeah, you can be anyone and do any thing versus well, and- in the first series Gwen was going to get fired for having a typewriter and taking a correspondence course yeah yeah and that wound up not yeah. happening but that 
You and felt now, the weight of it. You felt the way that potentially is chipping away at their power. Yeah. And it just feels like they've just been hemorrhaging the power upstairs. And the right. people downstairs, they haven't well, exactly just like been how accumulating we, it. But... How we talk about how everybody gets as much time off as they want. Exactly. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, and like Daisy's taking all these exams for no apparent reason. It's still not at all clear what the heck she's going to do now that she has these exams like, that she, she wouldn't gonna, have done is otherwise. Is she going to whip those out like at the farmer's market and be right. like, I'm good to negotiate with? Like, Yeah, like it's just baffling. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. That is a macro view. Yeah. Of this entire season. That is right. I'm glad we got that off our chest. Up in the servants' hallway, Anna sees Baxter, who asks what she's doing up there, and she says she was looking for Baxter to borrow some scissors, but she sees that Baxter is dressed to go out. Why doesn't Anna have her own scissors? Uh, her scissors broke. You Isn't know how- that an important part of being a lady's maid, is having some goddamn scissors? You know how scissors we're break all the time. About standards be slipping. <laughs> Baxter says that her workbox is downstairs and Anna's welcome to it. Anna asks where she's going. She says she's walking to the schoolhouse with Molesley for moral support. Anna sees Thomas and asks if he's all right. And he says, of course, why wouldn't I be in like a completely flat tone of voice? Anna goes off and Baxter seems troubled. In the upstairs hall, Mary hears Edith stomping and sniffling in her room and goes in. I would have closed my door if I were Edith, well, but... Edith is packing and Mary asks if she's going away. Edith asks if Mary cares. Mary says she wasn't to know Edith hadn't told him. And Edith says, shut up. Yeah. Which is so satisfying. Yes, it very much is. Especially when you consider how much we used to hate Edith. No, I know. But especially in this moment, seeing this line that we've already seen Mary try out. Yeah. That I couldn't have known. She doesn't know what happened. Uh, Branson or Lord Grantham made her feel bad, but it's just the same old Mary who wants her cake and happeny too, right. which I didn't know was a thing. I but didn't either, she's but she's mad. She might be mixing her metaphors. <laughs> Mary says she never meant to, but Edith says, of course she did. Who does she think she's talking to? McGee? Anna? Edith knows her and knows her to be a nasty, jealous, scheming bitch. And, like, she can't quite make eye contact with her there when she says that she's a bitch. And then Mary gets mad and says, now listen, but Edith cuts her off to look in her eyes and say, you're a bitch. And, like, it's just this beautiful combination of, like, the character Edith and Laura Carmichael finally getting to, like, you know, really throw a punch. Yeah, it really is. And it's just, like, she had tried out saying you're a bitch and she liked it. Uh And she was like, yes. I said a bitch and I liked it. No, and it's just so, like, it's such a brilliant just, like, tearing down because yeah. it was Tom or Papa that, like, yeah. made, made Mary feel guilty. And she would have gotten reassurance from McGee or Anna. Like, mm-hmm. it's just, it's really, it's really nice. So she says that Mary's not content with ruining her own life. She set out to marry, to ruin Edith's. And again, I'm not super sold on Mary ruining her own life, but let's yeah, enjoy yeah, this. Yeah. Mary says that she has not ruined her life. And if Bertie's put off by that, then Edith tells her not to demean herself by justifying her venom and to just go. Mary doesn't move. Edith picks up her suitcase and starts to head out. And Which then is tells- actually another brilliant moment because Mary's like, I'm not going to go just because I said so. And Edith is just like, great, you win. Yeah. I'm leaving anyway. Uh, she tells Mary that she's wrong, as she so often is. Matthew Good is perfect for her, and she's just too stupid and stuck up to see it. But at least he's gotten away from her. Edith is the very first person who said that Matthew Good is perfect for Mary that I have believed. Yeah, yeah. She's the only one 
I feel like she's the only one who has the good read on it. Mm-hmm. Good mm-hmm. read. <laughs> well, right. Uh, she sees the ways that they're the same and they're these assholes, but they'll be perfectly diffident and, mm-hmm. you know, self-absorbed and wealthy until World War II destroys their lives. Right. Which, of course, Edith... Maybe she knows more than she's letting on. I don't know. But Edith, I mean... And speaking as World War II's first victim. <laughs> no, but no, I do... I, I, mean, I was just going to say... I wonder I, if they'll nominate Laura Carmichael out of this season. I was just going to say that she's the MVP this of this season. episode yeah. for sure. I mean, this episode at least. But yeah, definitely. In the library, Carson says that Patmore has something to say. McGee says to bring her in, and he does. Lord Grantham asks how they can help. Patmore says that, well, they're trying to help by coming to the cottage, but should the family get mixed up in it? It's her mess. Carson agrees. McGee asks Carson if this is what he believes, and he says, yes, he doesn't want to see the family dragged into a tawdry local brouhaha. And Lord Grantham... Brouhaha, brouhaha, <laughs> that's how it goes. Speaking clearly directly to Carson is like, we have to show a little more backbone than that. Patmore's been loyal to the family, and they must be loyal to her in turn. Patmore starts to cry, and Lord Grantham is like, uh, ew. I yeah, wasn't... like, even Bertie Pelham didn't <laughs> blub this much, and his gay cousin just died. <laughs> yeah, and Patmore's like, oh, yes, I should go, and uh, that's fine. Carson asks if Lord Grantham is sure, and he says, quite sure, thank you. Baxter tells Mosley not to be nervous, and Mosley says he felt like a fraud yesterday and kept wondering when they'd, what they'd say if he, if they knew he worked at the big house and what would their parents say. And Baxter says to tell them, then they won't have to find out, which is yeah. the best and only good advice Baxter has ever <laughs> given to anyone. There's a poll. <laughs> There's a pulse. There's a pause, and Mosley says Thomas is in a funny mood. He suddenly told Mosley that he hoped he'd make more out of his life than he, Thomas, would ever make of his. Baxter suddenly has her spidey Baxter sense go yeah. off and says she should go back. Mosley asks if something's wrong, and she hopes not. She runs back and looks all around downstairs and rushes upstairs. Andy says she's on the men's side. <laughs> Andy, who happens to also be there. Right. Uh, and she asks about Thomas. And he says he was going in for a bath, and she says to come with her and runs down the hall. She knocks on the door and asks if Mr. Barrow's in there, and there's no answer. Andy kicks the door open, which impressive uh, display of brute strength, yeah, Andy. there you go. That'll be handy when it's pig farming time. Yep. Time to separate those piglets. <laughs> Thomas is in the bathtub, which is also filled with blood. Andy, who was also in the room, is horrified. <laughs> Baxter tells Andy to tell Mrs. Hughes and send Anna for the doctor, but to tell no one else. He heads out, and Baxter starts ripping her dress for bandages. Yeah. So, so yeah. we haven't talked about this that much. Right. I've seen this more discussed on the internet, and you know, people are very like, I hope Barrow's not heading for a suicide plot. Right. Uh, and I, I think we did mention at some point yeah. during the instant takes that we thought this was coming. Yeah. But it's like, and it's like very unfortunate. Um, and we got a long letter, which perhaps I will share on the next episode. Okay. Um, but just about, okay, like, this is like all we ever get mm-hmm. for stories about gay men. Mm-hmm. And it's always them being desolated and wanting to kill themselves, which is a part of their history. It did happen. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, we know. In the right. same way that every movie about black people doesn't have to be about being a slave. Yeah. Like, all of these other things have happened. Right. I guess what I would say in Downton's defense here is that you know, it's actually less about his gayness than you his would necessarily think. His lack of think. career prospects. His I lack know, of career I prospects think... and his lack of, of, you know, close relationships with anyone, yeah. you know. 
But part of the reason it, that he doesn't have any close relationships is because they're all like, ew. Right. Which is certainly true. And and I mean, yeah, like the, the, the point you make is good. I just, you know, I guess all I'm saying is that I just liked his performance so much this season. His performance <laughs> has been really great. Yeah. That can't be denied. But it's just yeah. a little bit, you know, yeah. it's a little basic yeah. to go this way. It route. is a little. I mean, that is certainly true. But that even at its height, Downton's always been kind of basic. That's true. To be fair. But yeah. We're definitely worth at least pointing out that this is like a little distasteful. Yeah, a little bit. In the kitchen, Daisy says she wishes she'd gone with Mosley and Baxter, and Patmore, who is just sitting staring into the distance, <laughs> thinking about her house of ill repute. <laughs> That's right. She says to go on, and Patmore can manage by herself. Daisy sh- says she's too late, but Patmore says, "Oh, go take a walk anyway. They might have a break when she gets there." <laughs> Patmore is also just. <laughs> She's done. And Daisy is like, she has this moment where she's like, well, Patmore's clearly crazy, but she said I can go. So she <laughs> takes her paper off and heads out. Uh, then Andy runs in and asks where Hughes and Anna are. And Patmore's like, ah, uh, Hughes is in her sitting room. And Andy runs off. And Patmore's like, huh. Edith is driving through the village and sees Branson and honks and pulls over. She asks if he's in a rush. Why would anyone ever be on a rush on this show? I understand. Uh, she needs somebody to go with her to the station to take the car back. Branson asks where she's going. She says to, where else does she go, dude? Yeah. She's going to Tangiers. <laughs> she hears it's great. <laughs> I'd like to go look at a young gay man. <laughs> might help me put things into perspective. <laughs> she hasn't said goodbye to anyone and she can't bear to look at Mary. Branson says Mary's unhappy. <laughs> and he thinks she regrets what she did. And Edith says, not as much as I do, which is a very fair point. Yeah. She says before she left, they had the row they all knew was coming, which is a little on the nose. And I wish she had not said that. I agree. She says she's sorry they didn't have it years ago. Branson says Bertie might come around. Edith says he might have about Marigold, but not about her trying to trick him, which she wasn't trying to trick him. I know. It's a hard thing to say to someone in 1925. It is. It's a hard thing to say. Uh, Yeah. Well, it's not as hard now. It's not as hard now, but I mean, ask somebody on a dating site whether you want to reveal that you have kids up front. Yeah. You know? Um, But then there's just no good way to bring it up. Right. Because if you put it on your profile, you're driving people away. Yeah. Then if you say it even in the course of the first date, it still looks like you've been trying to hide something. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough. Good thing we keep our baby in a closet. (laughs) We have a small apartment. (laughs) Uh, We don't actually have a baby. (laughs) Yeah. To be clear. Just in case anybody wanted to call child services. (laughs) Branson asks if she'd like him to talk to Bertie. She says no, but she loves him for asking why. And they should get going to the station. Because she loves Thomas the Peacemaker. Ugh. Tom the Peacemaker, sorry. Baxter is tending to Thomas in his bathtub of gay despair. (laughs) 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 Andy and Hughes walk in and Hughes says that Anna's gone for the doctor and they should get him in bed and out of his wet things. I feel like they should wait for the doctor, but... Baxter's uh, hopes that he won't mind that they undress him. And Hughes says that Thomas is past minding if they put him in a shy and through coconuts, which is a... Is that a Tangiers reference? I don't know what it is. It is a weird thing to say about somebody who has attempted suicide and is in the room with you. I told you that Baron Fellows got that slang book. (laughs) You're right. 
Anyway, she tells Baxter to get Thomas's feet, and she and Andy will take an arm each. Baxter asks if they should tell Lord Grantham, and Hughes says Carson is seeing to that. Uh, Hughes and Andy lift while Baxter just kind of sits there and does not help, and says that she hates to think that Thomas was so unhappy, and Andy says at least it's not gone too far. It's gone pretty far. Yeah, well, he Andy- still die. Since Andy learned to read, he's become an amateur doctor. He- <laughs> Daisy walks into the schoolhouse and hears Molesley teaching. He says one of them may run the country someday. Uh, a clear reference to Oliver Cromwell. <laughs> a kid says that's daft. Only toffs run the country. Molesley says they must never think that education is only for special people. It's for everyone. A kid says he would say that. And Molesley says, yes, but he's not anyone special. The kid says he's a teacher. Molesley says he is now, but he's an ordinary bloke and he spent his life in service. Another kid asks if he was a servant. Mosley says yes and glad to get the work. The first kid says her mom's in service. She works for Mr. Travis at the vicarage. Another kid's dad is a gardener somewhere that we've never heard of. Mosley says he never gave up on learning. He read as much as he could and taught himself, and he hopes to be able to teach them and give them the shortcut that he never had. Anyway, the Civil War. He starts with the divine right of kings. The kids all listen quietly and respectfully as Mosley asks whether King Charles really believed he had a divine right to rule, or did he just choose to believe that? A kid asks if he means the king was a liar, and Mosley says that kings are like anyone else Mm -hmm. and this is it's i mean it's a cliched scene but it comes off pretty well i liked it yeah yeah. i really yeah i have enjoyed mosley's performance yeah as well as birdie pelham if we're talking about dudes that look kind of weird who have done a really great job this series yeah and birdie's done we were just talking about it today we're like wait a minute he's actually been really good he's been stunningly good throughout this whole thing yeah and but i mean in such an understated way and it doesn't call any attention to itself Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. we're just like okay whatever right yeah which brings us to the second of our recurring segments tom repeats history with our resident roundhead reader tom tom welcome to the program thanks i'm glad to be here uh, and I was super excited when I realized what Mosley was teaching because I was like, I don't have to do any research or take any notes because this is my jam. This is exactly his jam. Yeah. I cannot tell you the number of times this asshole <laughs> has read King Charles's War since we got married. And he'd read it before we met. By C.V. Wedgwood, uh, a brilliant historian. Uh, and she, you know, particularly specializes in the area. Uh, uh, heiress to the Wedgwood China fortune. Oh, well, yeah. that explains how she had so much time That's to right. dick around about Oliver Cromwell. Right. And she wrote from a very royalist perspective about the Civil War. So, okay, so just to give a little background, the, the whole thing about the Civil War is that there was basically two things going on. One was a thing that was going on everywhere in Europe at this time, which was that they really didn't understand, they didn't have a solid basis for how a government should work. Because in the, you know, sort of Middle Ages, in this feudal system, Everybody kind of ran their own patch of land. And the king... Would you say that everyone sat under their own vine and fig tree? Well, except they were warlords. Oh, okay. But, yeah. So it was like, you know, barons and that sort of thing. Each ran their own little barony. But... So the king was, like, sort of the most important one, but he was still just basically, like, the biggest noble. And he had the most land and was the richest. That was basically it. Um, so this, as this idea of a modern nation was coming into development around this time, it was very confusing every, and to everybody. And by modern nation, you mean centralized government. Centralized government, exactly. Because there was no idea of taxation. The king was supposed to be able to pay for his own upkeep and essentially, therefore, the nations out of his own revenues because he had big lands in whatever country it was. And that should be enough. And the only times he would ask for taxes 
would be for uh, in wartime when he would ask all of his barons to send some men over to help fight. That was all fine in the Middle Ages because men were just men and you, whoever had the most guys won the battle and it was fine. But as technology advanced, you needed trained soldiers and specialized soldiers. And so just asking each of your random barons to send some people over wouldn't do you much good. You needed professionals who you had to pay with money. So they were like, okay, simple enough. When we ask our barons to send us soldiers, we'll say send us soldiers or some money and then we'll pay for the army. But then that became the basis of national government. You know, this is the forefront of the income tax, you know, the standard way of funding government that we all have now. But because it was associated with soldiers and with wartime, the idea that kings could ask for taxes when there wasn't a war going on was completely against everybody. Everybody was like, no, that makes no sense. We can't have it. And so that was what was going on with Charles I, was he was trying to run the government. He did not have enough money to do it. And in the, you know, in England, thanks to the random ways that they have developed to raise taxes, you had to get it through Parliament. That was the only way to ask for more money. Uh, and Parliament hated Charles I. They hated him for a variety of the reasons, one of which was that everybody wound up fucking hating Charles I because he was just a guy that he was he was never consistent. He alienated everyone eventually. All the people that would have been on his side if he had just given a little bit, he refused to do it. And actually, this is where I think Molesley is wrong. Because Molesley is like, oh, did you really de- believe in the divine right of kings or did you just say he did? I think that he really did. He believed that God had put him in charge of England. And it's partly because he was the first monarch of England in decades that had you know, just sort of naturally been born as the presumed heir and become it without any, there was no tumult around his succession, which is surprisingly rare in English history. Um, so he had never had any reason to doubt that he would be accepted as king his whole life. And so when he did become king, he was, and he had been taught by his father who wrote him a book specifically like, here's a book of how to be a king. It says that you are answerable to God and nobody else and when you die, God is going to say to you, did you hold up my divine right in ruling everything? God is such a terrible boss, though. Right. Like, he never shows up for his one-on-one. <laughs> you never have any idea, like, what standards you're being held to. Right. Exactly. And Worst so, boss. And so that was what Charles I was dealing with. And I think he really bought into it 100%. And so whenever anybody asked him to relinquish some control over the church, well, because that was the second thing. I said there was two things going on. One was, where does money come from to fund the government? And the second one was... When the Church of England became independent, did that mean that they were reforming the church to become more like true Christianity? Or did it just mean, as Henry VIII thought it meant, that they were just taking the exact same church and sending the money to Henry VIII rather than Rome? That was how Henry VIII wanted it, and that was generally what people, I mean, except for Bloody Mary, who wanted to send it back to Rome. But the the Protestants that followed him all felt pretty much the same way. But in order to make that, in order to sell the change in the beginning, they'd been like, you know, lambasting these popish practices and all these sorts of things. And they had enlisted the support of people like, as we've seen Wolf Hall, like Anne Boleyn's people and, uh, and, and other reformers who supported breaking from Rome because they wanted to reform. 
And once those people bought in and they had seen themselves make this change, they're like, once we've changed from Rome to England, why can't we also change from this like popish nonsense to real true reformed Christian religion? And this is, you know, the Puritans that wound up founding New England were a part of the same movement and all this sort of thing. So they were a big movement, and it so happens that the Puritans and uh, sort of merchants, the middle class that was kind of emerging out of nowhere, all you know, they tended to be the same. the 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 money power and the religious reform tended to be on the same side, and that side was against the king. And so that's what ended up happening. There was so many people that he could have compromised with. There were so many, like, Presbyterians, for example, who just wanted – they still wanted a very hierarchical church. Uh, They just wanted some slight changes to it that, you know, that wouldn't have been that big a deal. But the king was like, nope, I'm in charge. Any questioning of what I do is wrong. Forget it. And so the Presbyterians wound up siding with – these Puritans that they didn't really like at all and had – Nobody likes Puritans. Right. We just saw the witch. Right. And so the Presbyterians were really kind of the majority on the the reformer side, but they wound up, you know, they wound up losing to Oliver Cromwell because what ends up happening is if you're for compromise, but the other side won't compromise, you end up, you know, you end up with no leverage whatsoever. You know, because as as Cromwell and his people would point out to them, oh, you say we're just trying to negotiate with the king, then why did we start this war in the first place? Like if the king isn't going to negotiate, we have to end his reign. And if you just want to compromise with him, then you might as well go over there and side with him. And they couldn't do that because Charles would have killed them too. So they were really screwed. And so that's why the, the, the extreme side of the war wound up winning and taking over because Charles would never meet anyone halfway, ever, ever. I mean, he, and he would write all these letters saying, listen, I might get captured and tortured and forced to like claim that I'm signing over control of the church, but I promise you, don't believe it. I will disavow anything I can when I get back into power. Any promise I make, I promise you is invalid. What an optimistic person. Yeah. But it was, <laughs> yeah, but it was because of this belief that he had a divine mission to maintain the power that he had been given exactly as it was. With no changes, he had to have full control over the country, he had to full, full control over the church, and giving up even a tiniest bit of that power would be a sin against God. And so he was just, he was just like a Machiavellian, but entirely inept at it. I mean, he was just bad at politics too, like just not good at things. That was another big problem. Um, but he, he really did believe in his mission. It was just a stupid and doomed mission. So is is sort of my my position on him, um, but all of this is to say too, it's also worth noting in our in our present governmental system. Just because when there's a situation where nobody knows who's in charge, because you know the king is like I'm the king, but Parliament's like yeah, but we're the only ones that can raise money. The the prelude to the war was a period of about I forget five to ten years where Charles tried to rule without Parliament and just making up whatever random precedents he could find to collect money. Like he would say that, oh, I need to collect money to build ships to defend the coast because of this old act, even though nobody's attacking them. And ships. And so the balance shifts. Right. It was that sort of thing. And we'd be like, oh, I've made up this new thing that, you know, Edward II once was able to collect money this way. So now I'm demanding you all do it and all these sorts of things. And everybody was like, no, 
but also like only parliament can do that but the king was like well what if i just send soldiers to make you do it anyway and their only choice was to either accept that or start a civil war which is what they wound up doing how long did the war last it lasted i forget the number of years but it was along the lines of like four years like like our civil war Mm. Uh, it's slightly complicated because it was there was the civil war going on in England. There was also wars between England and Scotland and uprisings in Ireland that all kind of, you know, had different starts and ends. But I feel like it was roughly four to five years. And it killed a lot of people, like proportionally to the population of the time. Like a lot of people died in it. And it was extremely bloody. More so than the American Civil War? Because, I mean, that's the whole point of a civil war is right. it's extremely bloody. It was I, – I feel like it was – And I forget the statistics because I feel like what I read was that it was kind of on par with the American Civil War, which really surprised me because I had gotten the impression that it was, you know, much less so. Mm -hmm. But it really, you know, it was, again, like the American Civil War was proportionally the bloodiest war in their history. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Uh, And it was because nobody really knew who was in charge in the government. And that's an important thing to know. And it's why the division of powers that our founding fathers thought was a good idea is actually a very bad idea and is going to cause serious problems at some point in the next 50 to 100 years. Oh, so, great. Yeah. I hope I'm dead. <laughs> That's my hope as well. I don't really want to be in a war. No, me neither. Uh, wait, who won the war? Well, the Cromwell and the Roundheads won the war. Charles was uh, captured, tried, and executed, which was just a shocking, shocking thing to everybody. And he was tried, you know, as king. Even unlike in the French Revolution, they were like, nope, there's no more kingship, and this is just citizen capet mm-hmm. that we are executing. But no, he was executed as king. Uh, and then they very hastily, actually on the day of the execution, they were like, oh shit, if we execute him, then his son, who had escaped to France, will be king. So they like very hastily passed an act of parliament that's like, oh, there's no more kings anymore, we're a republic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it lasted for years and did very well. And if Oliver Cromwell hadn't died unexpectedly, or if he had clearly named an heir before he died unexpectedly, England might not have a king to this day. But there was some confusion. His son, Richard Cromwell, known to history as Tumble Down Dick. Oh, yikes. Yeah. Who was just, he was very much, again, going with the, the Wolf Hall analogy, but it's like... Uh, Gregory. Gregory, yeah. He was very much a Gregory. Um, and he just, he was not a capable person. I've asked you this before, and I never remember the answer. Was Oliver Cromwell descended from Thomas Cromwell? He was not. He... I, I'm pretty sure that he wasn't at all. Like maybe there was, maybe they had a common ancestor. Okay. But it was often the coincidence of the name really meant a lot to people because, you know, Thomas Cromwell was still remembered for destroying monasteries. Mm-hmm. And so then Oliver Cromwell's going around destroying various other places and everybody just kind of assumed he was descended from him, even though he actually was not. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Yep. Well, thank you, Tom. You're welcome. That was fascinating. And I can confirm he used no notes. <laughs> no. Whatsoever. That was all straight from memory. <laughs> In the library, <laughs> McGee tells Mary that Edith's gone to London and they all know why. Mary asks if they have to do this now. Rosamond angrily says yes, but then stops when Carson enters. Lord Grantham asks Carson what's happened. Where are the footmen? And Carson says that is something he needs to discuss with Lord Grantham. (laughs) He whispers to him, presumably that Molesley has skipped town to (laughs) teach at the school. Lord Grantham uh, says to 
everyone that Thomas has cut his wrists. Everyone is shocked. Lord Grantham asks, who knows? Carson says, not many, and he'd like to keep it that way. He will say that Thomas has influenza. McGee says, not to bother serving their tea. And Carson heads out. Rosamond says, how sad. Mary goes over and pours herself tea and asks Lord Grantham if he still thinks dismissing Thomas was a useful saving. Lord Grantham says that's below the belt, even for her. Which... Like, on a scale of below the belt to below the beltiest, <laughs> I think what she did to Edith was much worse. Yeah, agreed. Well, and there's no implication that that is why he did it. Right. Like, as far as they know. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it is a little, like... I mean, I guess what I would say is, like, Lord Grantham was already thinking that. Yeah. You don't need to rub it in, but, yeah, not that big a deal, relatively. <laughs> I, downstairs... Carson tells Hughes that they've kept Thomas out of the hospital. Clarkson stitched him up. We didn't even get to see Clarkson. I know. No Clarkson in this episode. Yeah. What a rip. Yeah. And he says that Baxter found Thomas in time. Hughes says that she'll go up in a minute as they enter the servants' hall. Mosley says he saw Dr. Clarkson there, wonders why, and Carson announces that Thomas has been taken poorly and will spend a day or two in bed. And Anna and Baxter will look after him. Baxter, Baxter asks, that is tough, how school was. <laughs> And Molesley says that the children were generous with him. Daisy says that the school children were spellbound, she knows, because she crept in and listened. She says Molesley's a natural, and everybody applauds, which is... So, Thomas almost killed himself. <laughs> Everyone's clapping for Molesley. Up is down. Black is white. Cats and dogs living together. Carson asks if they're going to lose Molesley to the groves of academe, and Molesley asks for a little longer to decide, as is Downton tradition. <laughs> Bates says that Mosley is a kind man, and it's about time he was rewarded for it. Uh, if Mosley leaves, can't they then keep Thomas? I would think. Anna tells Mary that Thomas will recover and didn't have to go to hospital. Mary hopes they can keep it quiet for his sake. Anna says that's what Carson wants. Mary says, what a day. She ruins Edith's life, and Thomas tries to end his. Anna asks how Edith is. Mary says she's gone to London, which makes sense, given that her only six... Tr- it's been a long podcast, it everybody. It has been. Which makes sense, given that her only sister has wrecked her chance of a happy life. Anna asks if Bertie will come around. Mary says that Edith thinks not, and she is sorry. Anna asks if she's thought any more about Matthew Good, and Mary says not to start. Anna's as bad as Branson, which is not true. No. Anna asks what Matthew, what Branson did. Mary says he asked Matthew Good to come and keeps going on and on, but Matthew Good's not right for her. They'd be miserable. Anna says as long as she's sure, and Mary angrily says she is sure. She apologizes, but nobody can believe that she knows her own mind. Anna says, of course, asks if she can do anything more. Mary says, no, thank you. Mary says, good night, and she's sorry. Great. Okay. More apologies that don't mean anything. (laughs) At E, the Edith magazine, (laughs) editor says that Edith doesn't know that that's the end, but Edith says that she does know and asks her not to think badly of Bertie. The editor says she liked him, and Edith says that she did too. The editor says that Edith's sister hasn't been helpful, and Edith says that they're locked into a lifelong struggle. It's hard for an outsider to understand, or even for Edith to understand. The secretary walks in with some papers saying, "Who's who invented families? That's what I'd like to know. Here, here. Yeah. Uh, and this is just so not Edith has her support network. I wish, okay, I wish that the Downton Abbey spinoff was going to just be E, the Edith magazine. Mm-hmm. And that Bertie would come around, and they'd just live at Brancaster, and she'd come down here, and everything would be fine. I agree. Edith, Edith ha- pig in the city. <laughs> <laughs> she meets up with Mr. Drew. Edith asks when Miss Jones is coming in, and Secretary says at five for tea. 
Edith asks if they know her real name yet, and they do not. So maybe Cassandra Jones is a real name after all. Editor says, real or not, she's got a following, so they'd better be pals, which is a phrase I enjoyed. Edith asks how the editor got Cassandra to come, and the editor says that she forced her. She wants more money, which is fair, given that her following, but the editor insisted that they negotiate in person. Edith asks why, and the editor says, well, because I was curious. Edith says if she's so secretive, maybe she'll send someone to impersonate her. The editor suggests that they come up with a sign for if they think that it's the real Cassandra, they'll say bananas, and Edith laughs and agrees. You mean bananas. <laughs> I do mean bananas. In ba- pajamas. <laughs> Coming down the stairs. You're right. Thomas is in bed reading uh, because he can. Yeah. <laughs> Mary knocks and enters with George, who gives him an orange to make him feel better. You guys. Yeah. Thomas thanks him and Mary says that they want him to get better and no one more than Master George. And Thomas says at least he's got one friend and Master George nods the most adorable nod I've ever seen. <laughs> Mary asks if he's been lonely and Thomas says if he has, he only has himself to blame. He's done and said things. He can't stop himself and now he's paying the price. Mary says that she could say the same about herself. And Anna comes in with a tray, stops short, and begs Lady Mary's pardon. Mary says they're going, and she hopes things improve for Thomas. Thomas says he'd say the same for her if it wasn't impertinent. (laughs) Mary smiles, and Master George says goodbye. And this was a very nice scene. It was a very nice scene. More scenes like this, please. Yes. Well, and Mary and Thomas are basically the same person. Yeah. And it just took so long to get to this point. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. should really just be buds. I agree. In the kitchen, Hughes says, today's the big day, and Patmore says, spare me. Hughes asks if she wants to take Daisy with her, and Hughes says, yes. Her niece is good, but might be dumbstruck at the lords and ladies. Hughes asks how the village will know that they've been there, and Patmore says that they've got the man from The Echo coming at five. Carson wanders in and says, put up a poster, why don't you? I like how he's slowly turning <laughs> into Batman. Well, he's really annoying me this episode. <laughs> Hugh says that they're doing something nice, and Carson says that the public will read about all the cakes and dainties that Lord Grantham is guzzling as he sits at the adulterer's table. I'm going to open a restaurant called the adulterer's <laughs> table. Adulterers only! Yeah. Clean living monogamous. stay out! Hughes points out that she's sure there have been a few adulterers seated at the table upstairs. Boom! And we know for a fact! Yeah. Carson says, Remember that dude that tried to bang Rosamond, but really he was banging her maid? Wow. Yeah, right? I remember things. You do remember things. I know what's up with this show. Yikes. Uh, Carson says that that's different. Hughes asks why, and Carson has no response to that clearly. So he says, plus we've got the suicidal footman in the attic, which A, only one person, and B, he's not a footman, he's the underbutler. Yeah, and you do well to remember that, because that is actually why he can't get a job, because his title makes no sense. <sighs> Carson says that he just thanks God that the dowager isn't here to witness it. Speak of the dowager. <laughs> a car pulls up at the front door, and Andy opens the door, and the dowager gets out. Branson comes out and thanks her for coming, and the dowager says that he made it sound urgent. He asks if things were all right at home, and the dowager says, no, Sprat has gone away, which is weird. Branson asks if she told him she was coming back, and she says a good butler should not need to be told. Uh, the dowager asks where her broken-hearted granddaughters are, and Branson says it's just Mary. Edith's gone to London. He didn't know when he wrote that she was going, yeah. and the dowager says all the better. In the kitchen, Daisy's packing up a basket and asks how they'll get it all there, and Patmore says that they are letting her have a car. 
Carson comes in and says they brought the car around, tells Andy to take a basket out. Hughes wishes her good luck. Carson says good luck to them all in the vain hope that they'll avoid scandalous gossip, which I can't even imagine what that would be. Hughes says that Carson is an old curmudgeon. Carson hopes she's not going off him, and Hughes says that he is her curmudgeon, and that makes all the difference and kisses him. I disagree with you, Mrs. Hughes. He's being annoying as fuck. Agreed. In what is presumably Mary's room? Right. It's unclear. Yeah. Mary asks the dowager when she arrived, and she says yesterday evening she spent an entire day on train, so she's come hot foot. Mary says if she's there to reprimand her about Edith, please don't. Branson's already torn her to strips. The dowager asks why she did it. Mary doesn't know. Edith was so... And doesn't finish that thought at all. Uh, Anyway, she's sorry now. The dowager says she should be. Mary says with Edith, she just says things and they can't be unsaid. The dowager says Branson believes Mary lashes out because she's unhappy. Mary says that if this is about Matthew Good, the dowager should be clear he doesn't have much to offer. Bertie is a loss, but not Matthew Good. He's well-born, but there's no money or position. And he's not even a countryman. He grew up in London. The dowager says he shoots. Mary says yes, like every social climbing banker shoots. Wow, well. The dowager says let's leave his credentials to one side and concentrate on what is important. Branson says they're in love. Mary asks if the dowager believes it. The dowager asks if Mary denies it and we're getting nowhere. (laughs) Mary says that it's odd for the dowager of all people to say his qualifications don't matter. But the dowager says that Gilly had all that she could wish, but he didn't suit Mary. He wasn't clever enough, and he wasn't strong enough, and Matthew Good is both. Has she met him? She did meet him, like once, right? I, I'm going to okay. say yes. Mary says, okay, it's not about the money, and she starts crying as she says it's that she stood there, staring at a car in flames, wondering if it were him, and she says she can't be a crash widow again. She can't. She'd live in terror, dreading every race, every practice, and she can't do it, which again has been no indication of this right well and see here's the thing like the way in which this all like because this these last few scenes almost make it work it's just not there in anything that leads up to it Mm -hmm. and also the phrase crash widow is comical chosen it should be a reality show crash widows of 1925 (laughs) they go to a lot of dinner parties and say i'm not a war widow right i'm a crash widow (laughs) because it makes like My apologies to any actual crash widows who are listening. Yeah, really. But honestly, I'm not sure why you're still watching this show. Yeah, you probably shouldn't. Um, Because it's like, there's things I see about it, which is like, A, Mary, like, wants somebody, i.e. the dowager actually comes and just has a conversation with her about it, rather than just badgering her that she's ruining her life, you know, then she can finally open up and say something. Particularly because it is the dowager. Yeah. One of the few people that she like respects yeah and relates to yeah well she wants to be her yeah but it just it just wasn't there leading up to this which is unfortunate but here we are none of the everything was in this relationship leading up to this yeah they just left out they rushed the whole thing Mm -hmm. whereas i mean i thought it seemed clear at the end of last series that they were setting her up to be with charles blake yeah and then julian ovenden didn't renew his contract so yeah I mean, you know, I know you do what you have to do, but there's no, you know, there's nothing in the rule book that says you have to have Mary get married by the end of this. Right. The Dowager stands up and asks if Matthew Good knows how upset Mary is about possibly being a crash widow. 
But Mary says that he would feel he should give it up and he would resent her. Mary asks if the Dowager can't find a spare Duke somewhere so she can put Edith in her place. The Dowager says that Mary's the only woman she knows who likes to think herself cold, selfish, and grand. Dowager thinks that most of them try to hide it. Mary asks her not to lecture her on sentimental values, and the Dowager says not to worry. She believes in rules and traditions and playing their part. But there is something else. She believes in love. She says, brilliant careers and rich lives are seldom lived without an element of love. Mary says, oh, Granny, you do surprise me. The Dowager says she is glad, so climbing all those stairs wasn't wasted. (laughs) The Dowager says, first, make peace with your sister and then make peace with yourself. And she hugs her. Notably, she does not say, absolutely, go marry Matthew Good. Right. That's definitely true. That's definitely true. And an excellent point. And she's... She crushes it. She crushes she to- it. I mean, of course she crushes it. Of course it. she does, but she does. Yeah. She absolutely does. And that, that moment where she's like, no, 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 don't worry. I'm not going to get too sentimental with you. Yeah. Like, it's really good. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Lord Grantham heads out with McGee and Rosamond. Lord Grantham asks Mary if uh, the Dowager will be back for dinner, and Mary doesn't think so. Lord Grantham says she goes without telling them and returns without seeing them. And McGee's like... We're in the doghouse. How hard is that to understand? She sent us a dog. <laughs> Lord Grantham asks Mary if she wants to come, and she says, no, they're enough of a headline on their own. And Branson says they certainly don't need him. Yeah, on any level. Right. Everyone else also certainly doesn't need him. Lord Grantham heads out, and Carson asks for a word. He says he'd like to tell Thomas he can stay for the time being, at least. And Lord Grantham says he was about to suggest the same thing. You mean the same thing you've been telling him, which is what drove him to suicide? Right. In what way is that a change in his status? Anyway. Lord Grantham says he feels guilty. Carson does as well. And what he blames himself for, Carson, is that he did not credit Thomas with feelings. He thought he was a man without a heart, and he was wrong. Lord Grantham says that no man is an island, not even Thomas Barrow. Uh, also, guess who was really acting heartless in this whole thing? Carson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Inside, Mary says she ought to be angry at Branson for summoning the Dowager, and Branson is surprised she came. Mary says that the Dowager said Branson was very eloquent. Branson asks what she'll do. Mary says that as soon as the Dowager left, she sent Matthew a a telegram to get the next train. Boy, he's really going to have whiplash. It's been like a day. (laughs) I know. Branson asks about Edith. Mary says that's harder. She's ready to say that she's sorry, but why should Edith forgive her? Which is a really uh, self-aware answer. Yeah, agreed. At the magazine, Edith rushes in saying she was delayed and asks if Miss Jones is there yet. The secretary says, yes, Miss Cassandra Jones has arrived. He's just like, why the mysterious face? And the secretary says that she should just go on in. So she does, and the ed- editor introduces Miss Cassandra Jones, and it's Spratt! So crazy. Yeah. And the Edith and the editor, Edith and the editor say, bananas, and they laugh. <laughs> yeah. And Spratt says, hello, Lady Edith, in his I way. I love Spratt. Yeah. No, I'm so glad he has a second job. Yeah. He's so fascinating. <laughs> Mary walks up to Matthew's grave. Oh, Matthew Reginald Crawley. <laughs> she says she doesn't have to tell him why she's there. Either he knows everything or he's not hearing her, which man, yeah. Mary's always had my number as far as uh, religion is concerned. Yeah. She says that she loves Henry Talbot and she believes that they are right together. I called she, him Henry Talbot in this scene because she's talking to Matthew and it would have been confusing. Uh, that's fair. Just for the record. No, I already had that happen to me earlier, <laughs> so... 
But she wants to feel that Matthew's happy for her, as she would be happy for him, presumably, if she was dead and he was not. Right. She says, however much she loves Henry, she will always love Matthew. She kisses the tombstone and walks away and encounters Isabel, who says she often comes at this time. Mary says she doesn't come often enough, and Isabel says, no, no, it's only a habit. And I'm like, why are you apologizing for visiting your dead son's grave (laughs) when literally no one else is? Mary says she came to ask for his forgiveness, if that doesn't sound too silly. Isabel supposes that means she wants to marry again, and Mary nods. Isabel doesn't know she has Matthew's forgiveness, but Mary doesn't have to ask for hers. She's delighted and also would like to know when she can see her grandson. Yeah. She I- doesn't actually say that. <laughs> I'm just saying you'd think that his only living other blood relative well, – well, his father's only living blood relative right. would yeah, maybe but, want to see him occasionally. Yeah. Who? <laughs> At Beryl Patmore's Bed and Adultery and Breakfast. <laughs> it's got everything I like. <laughs> Patmore asks if she can get uh, the Granthams anything more. Rosamond says, one more mouthful and they'd explode. Lord Grantham asks if there's another scone. Patmore says, of course. McGee asks when the photographer arrives. And Patmore says at five. And some of the villagers have heard and come around. Are they sure they still want to go through with it? And McGee says, oh, ye of little faith. In the library. Boy, I'm going to be glad when we don't have to say in the library anymore. <laughs> Matthew Good walks in and Branson says he'll leave them to it. Matthew Good says he doesn't have to go. Branson says it's that he's been part of this courtship for quite long enough. It's for them to manage from here and walks out. Here, here. Matthew Good says, well, he says the last time he saw her, she threw him out. And now she's whistled and he's here, but he doesn't know why. Uh, which is a good sign, I think, for their relationship, yeah. actually. The first encouraging one we've had. Yeah. Mary says because he's right, they are in love with each other. She's not sure why she fought it, but she stopped fighting it now. Matthew Good says he knows he's not what they are looking for. Mary says that she and Branson talked about how relationships should be equal. Nothing to do with position or money, but equal in strength and passion. She asks if she should ring for more tea. Matthew Good asks if she's always so cool and collected, and he hopes so. Because he says that her words have made his heart pound at such a rate, he's surprised she can't hear it. Mary says he carries it off rather well. He says thanks. Uh, it's worth noting this is the first time they've had even an iota of uh, chemistry that makes me believe like this is the right yeah, course of no, action. Yeah, no, in this scene, I'm like, oh, okay, now it makes sense to me. He says he needs to know that she's certain. She says she is. She has met her match. She's not 20, trembling at the touch of his hand. But she knows if she leaves him, she'd never be as happy as they could be together. Matthew Good says he's not 20 either, but he still trembles at the touch of her hands. Mary says, me too. I don't know why I said that, really. (laughs) Matthew Good says, thank God for her, and kisses her. Mary asks what they do now, elope to Gretna Green? Matthew Good says last time he came, he brought a license so they could marry at once, which is kind of dickish. It was a little bit. We're getting toward the end of the episode and things need to wrap up. (laughs) Mary asks if the Archbishop of Canterbury agrees, and Matthew Good says, not if you specify a church. I have no idea, but whatever. It has to do because it took a long time for you to not have to um, read the bands uh-huh. from a church before you get married. Okay. Uh, which actually Sybil says when she is going to marry Tom, she says that they'll read the bands from his family's church in Ireland. Okay. Anyway, uh, Mary says that you still need a bishop and Matthew Good says his uncle's a bishop and Mary says, good old England, which, okay. <laughs> sure. Uh, he says the point Rich is... Rich people can do what they want. Is oh, yeah. what's good about England, apparently. It's what's good about everywhere. <laughs> he says the point is the license is still valid, so they should they just marry now or on Saturday anyway? He asks if she wants a huge society wedding again. Mary says, God, no, she's done that. <laughs> which, as somebody who's had a society wedding, I mean, insofar <laughs> right. as in, in our milieu, relative but yes. rednecks can, yeah. uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that I'm planning to marry anybody else. Right. But I'm not doing that shit again. Yeah. Uh, Matthew Good asks if she will. Mary supposes she's come this far. They kiss again very passionately. Mm-hmm. Carson comes in and turns around and he leaves. He's Molesley coming with a tray. Tells him to give it a moment and Molesley mugs for the cameras. Yeah. He does the Molesley look that I always think is him saying, I better pretend I understand what's going on. <laughs> As we see the family leaving Patmore's B&B to applause, no longer bed and adultery in breakfast, thanks to this. Uh, Lord Grantham insists that Patmore be in the picture with them, and the picture gets taken, and I'm always reminded of how short Mrs. Patmore is, because she's standing right in front of Lord Grantham and comes up to, like, his, like, collarbone at most. Then, it's Saturday, apparently. Hooray! What day was it before? Yeah. Who cares? Like, who's ready for some wedding planning things? Nobody, because it's happening, people. Uh, Branson asks... Matthew Good, if he's cheated, and he swears that he hasn't set eyes on Mary since yesterday's lunch. He even had breakfast in his room. And Branson says that's Carson, who wouldn't take any chances with Mary's happiness. Really? Because they haven't spoken the entire series. Well, here we are. They get in the car. Branson realizes that he'll be best man at both of Mary's weddings. Ew! Don't talk about that, man. Agreed. Yeah, because I know what I want to hear on the day of my <laughs> wedding to a widow is, like, stuff about her first wedding. <laughs> Matthew Good says that Branson's been a good friend in this, which is a fair point. He did make this whole thing happen in retrospect. Branson says to pay him back by looking after Mary. They see a car going towards Downton and with Edith in the back. Uh, so we see McGee and Rosamond who are helping dress Mary in her room when Edith walks in and McGee says she can't believe it. Like she has this, like her reaction is like. It's a pretty standard McGee. Yeah. Overly surprised. Yeah. And asked why she didn't say to expect her and Edith says she wasn't sure she would come until she got on the train. McGee asks how she's feeling and Edith says fine and not to ask her that for the rest of the day. Mary asks if they could leave them for a moment, and so they all head out. Mary says that Edith knows that she's sorry. Edith says she assumed she'd be fairly sorry, unless she's actually insane. (laughs) Mary says she's not insane, and she's sorry. She doesn't know why she did it. Edith says it was because Mary wasn't happy, so she wanted Edith to be unhappy, too. And now Mary's happy again, and she'll be nicer for a while. Mary says if that's what she feels, why is she there? Edith says that in the end, Mary is her sister, and one day only they will remember Sybil... Or Mama or Papa or Matthew or Gregson or the Dowager or Carson or any of the others who have peopled their youth until finally their shared memories will mean more than their mutual dislike. This scene almost makes up for everything that's happened since season three. <laughs> yeah. Like it's like. It's so good. It really, really it's is. It's well written and they act the shit out of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mary asks what Edith thinks that Matthew would have made it in made of it and by does i mean she asked what he would have thought pointing to a picture that is presumably of matthew but which is turned away from the camera <laughs> i mean dan stevens may not have given them image right i mean i, I don't know his actual contract i don't know man don't let the flaming mary says that she went to matthew's grave to tell him which isn't like her Edith says that Matthew loved her and wanted her to be happy, and she's sure he'd be Not very... Not enough to keep his eyes on the road, but... <laughs> she's sure he'd be very, very pleased. In fact, she knows he would. And she says that Mary looks nice, and Mary thanks her. At the church, Bates and Anna walk up the lane, and she tells him to go find a seat. Behind them, Murdy tells Isabel he heard she called on Crookshank. Isabel says they were talking about Larry. Murdy asks if it was productive in his dumb way, and Isabel says that it depends... On Larry. <laughs> Murdy says, but surely. And the Dowager cuts him off and says, the ball is in Larry's court and only he can play it. Mm-hmm. Inside, Travis goes to the end of the wedding ceremony as everybody, including Lady Shackleton. <gasps> I love Lady Shackleton. Right. 
uh, who was related to Matthew Good, we remember. She's his aunt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they all look on. Uh, outside, people throw flowers and Matthew Good and Mary kiss. Patmore tells Daisy it was a treat, but they'll pay for it now if they don't get home to serve the breakfast. Great. Yeah. Thanks for filling us in <laughs> on what the cook and the other cook are doing. <laughs> Mary tells Matthew Good that he swept her off her feet, and he says that she won't be sorry, and she says she better not and be. And they're definitely talking about sex. They definitely which, are. Which, like, come on. Look at Matthew Good. I, that dude knows his way around a vagina. He's going to be fine. <laughs> they drive off. Lord Grantham says, there they go, a new couple in a new world. It seems all of their ships are coming into port. McGee says, and Edith? Lord Grantham says that of all his children, she's given him the most surprises. And Thouger says, yes, surprises of the, surprises of the most mixed variety. More surprising than dying in childbirth? <laughs> yeah, but that was only one surprise. <laughs> and marrying the chauffeur? That, and yeah. becoming a nurse? And wearing pants that time? She did wear pants that time. Yeah, she did wear pants that time. You don't see and, these bitches wearing pants. And she helped Gwen out, and you only found that out like a month ago. That's true. Ah, Sybil. Anyway. Let's not even... We're almost done. <laughs> Lord Grantham says that a surprise is a surprise, and he's sure they haven't seen the last one yet. We're against surprises still. <laughs> uh, and Edith watches Marigold playing with some kids in the churchyard. And this shot goes on for far too long. It does. But it's fine. We really liked her in that scene with Mary, so yeah. we'll give it a pass. That is fine. Uh, which brings us to the second to last Abbey Awards. That's right. That's the end of regular season down, everybody. That's the everybody. end of regular season it's down, done. Abby. There's it's just over. a Christmas special left. That's it. Wow. Crazy. However, we still have the Abbey Awards. We do. Worst decision goes to... Thomas. For trying to kill himself. Yeah. It's it's not something that we endorse. So, that's a pretty clear one. Next up, we have the best evasion. Uh, Lord Grantham for going and writing those letters. Right. And not engaging with the bizarre situation at breakfast. He was like, Mary seems upset. I'm going to write some letters. You know, that's what my family does when I'm upset. <laughs> and rightly so. <laughs> Next, we have worst overbite. And that goes to Carson for his insane fixation on the adultery that happened at the B&B. Like, you used to work in music halls. I bet you saw your fair share of adultery back then, Buster. Right. Like, on stage. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, that was ridiculous. Next up, we have the Cutest Baby Award. Which goes, of course, to Master George. It does. Who wound up being the dark horse cutest baby yeah. of this series. We thought Sippy was going to run away with it she again. She was barely but, in it. Yeah. And even when she was, she didn't have as great stuff to do as George. Yeah. So his relationship with Barrow has been amazing. Yeah, so it really it's has. It's been a lot of fun. Next up, we have the Gibson Girl Award. And... In a surprising upset, we're giving this to Daisy yeah. for the outfit that she wore to go spy on Molesley at the school. Right. Great hat, great coat. Yeah, it had a little like, we, lapel pin yeah, on it, we too. Just, like it was, we haven't given as many of these to the servants this time because their clothes have been pretty wackadoo. Right. And look, <laughs> a lot of the clothes have been real wackadoo. Yeah. Uh, it's just that the rich people wear so many more outfits. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to tell the difference between the various black dresses that everybody's <laughs> wearing downstairs. Right. So. But yeah, Daisy, Daisy stood out and a well-deserved award. And now for the Fashion Backwards Award for Backward Fashion, a.k.a. The Backy. And that goes to Rosamond. Oh, my God, you guys. I know you had mentioned the one from earlier in the yeah. episode. But then what she wore to Mary's wedding. It, oh, my God. It was like, are you in, like, Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland? <laughs> Is that a cowboy hat? Like, it was no, just the hat. anus. 
the hat was unbelievable. Like, how did that even happen? Maybe like, she was just embarrassed that she hadn't changed her hair since 1912. <laughs> and somebody pointed it out. She's like, well, I better do something to distract them. <laughs> and finally, the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smith, which if you'll recall, we were concerned yeah. that there might not have been a Maggie Smith's in this episode, we would have had to divide by zero. The whole thing would have exploded. Like, who knows? Our our soundboard would have melted. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but rest assured, cousins, she's closing out regular season play with a five. That's right. Five Maggie Smiths for some sage, much-needed advice that almost made that entire plot make sense. Yeah. I mean, and she then was, uh, she th- also told off Murdy. Right. I mean, she was only in one scene and then that one line of the next one, but by God, she maximized she it. She sure did. Yeah. Which is what she does. That's right. That is why she's here. Mm-hmm. It is basically why this podcast <laughs> has existed for low these many years. <laughs> That's right. All right. So that is it. That for is. regular season. So we believe next week there is no episode. Right. And so we will be off. We'll be off. We'll kind of be off regardless because Kelly's going to be traveling. So yeah. if we're wrong, we apologize. Anyway, but, but uh, yeah. So then uh, March 6th, mm-hmm. final Downton episode recap ever. Yikes. Don't miss it. Mm-hmm. I presume if you're still here. Right. You'll, you're you'll probably. Yeah, yeah. You'll be fine. If you've listened to all, you know two and a half plus hours of this episode of the podcast you're pretty dedicated yeah, and we'd like are. to thank you for I can't that believe how long this took. <laughs> all right uh until next time up, up yours, yours downstairs, downstairs. luncheon out, out.